At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 8, Chapter 4 of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eight, Chapter Four, La Siete Agne Speranza. Leave all hope behind, ye who enter here. In the Middle Ages, when an edifice was complete, there was almost as much of it in the earth as above it, unless built upon piles like Notre Dame, a palace, a fortress, a church had always a double bottom. In cathedrals, it was in some sort another subterranean cathedral, low, dark, mysterious, blind and mute, under the upper nave which was overflowing with light and reverberating with organs and bells day and night. Sometimes it was a sepulchre. In palaces, in fortresses, it was a prison, sometimes a sepulchre also, sometimes both together. These mighty buildings, whose mode of formation and vegetation we have elsewhere explained, had not simply foundations, but, so to speak, roots, which ran branching through the soil in chambers, galleries, and staircases, like the construction above. Thus churches, palaces, fortresses had the earth halfway up their bodies. The cellars of an edifice formed another edifice, into which one descended instead of ascending and which extended its subterranean grounds under the external piles of the monument, like those forests and mountains which are reversed in the mirror-like waters of a lake, beneath the forests and mountains of the banks. At the fortress of Saint-Antoine, at the Palais de Justice of Paris, at the Louvre, these subterranean edifices were prisons. The stories of these prisons, as they sank into the soil, grew constantly narrower and more gloomy. They were so many zones where the shades of horror were graduated. Dante could never imagine anything better for his hell. These tunnels of cells usually terminated in a sack of a lowest dungeon, with a vat-like bottom where Dante placed Satan, where society placed those condemned to death a miserable human existence, once interred there. Farewell light, air, life. Ogni speranza, every hope. It only came forth to the scaffold or the stake. Sometimes it rotted there. Human justice called this forgetting. Between men and himself, the condemned man felt a pile of stones and jailers weighing down upon his head, and the entire prison, 
the massive Bastille was nothing more than an enormous, complicated lock, which barred him off from the rest of the world. It was in a sloping cavity of this description, in the Obliettes excavated by Saint-Louis, in the Impasse of the Tournelle, that La Esmeralda had been placed on being condemned to death, through fear of her escape, no doubt, with the colossal courthouse over her head. Poor fly, who could not have lifted even one of its blocks of stone! Assuredly, Providence and society have been equally unjust. Such an excess of unhappiness and of torture was not necessary to break so frail a creature. There she lay, lost in the shadows, buried, hidden, immured. Any one who could have beheld her in this state, after having seen her laugh and dance in the sun, would have shuddered. Cold as night, cold as death, not a breath of air in her tresses, not a human sound in her ear, no longer a ray of light in her eyes. Snapped in twain, crushed with chains, crouching beside a jug and a loaf, on a little straw, in a pool of water, which was formed under her by the sweating of the prison walls. Without motion, almost without breath, she had no longer the power to suffer. Phoebus, the sun, midday, the open air, the streets of Paris, the dances with applause, the sweet babblings of love with the officer, then the priest, the old crone, the poignard, the blood, the torture, the gibbet. All this did indeed pass before her mind, sometimes as a charming and golden vision, sometimes as a hideous nightmare. But it was no longer anything but a vague and horrible struggle, lost in the gloom, or distant music played up above ground, and which was no longer audible at the depth where the unhappy girl had fallen. Since she had been there she had neither waked nor slept. In that misfortune, in that cell, she could no longer distinguish her waking hours from slumber, dreams from reality, any more than day from night. All this was mixed, broken, floating, disseminated confusedly in her thought. She no longer felt, she no longer knew, she no longer thought. At the most she only dreamed. Never had a living creature been thrust more deeply into nothingness. Thus benumbed, frozen, petrified, she had barely noticed on two or three occasions the sound of a trap-door opening somewhere above her, without even permitting the passage of a little light, and through which a hand had tossed her a bit of black bread. Nevertheless, this periodical visit of the jailer was the sole communication which was left her with mankind. The single thing still mechanically occupied her ear. Above her head the dampness was filtering through the moldy stones of the vault, and a drop of water dropped from them at regular intervals. She listened stupidly to the noise made by this drop of water as it fell into the pool beside her. This drop of water, falling from time to time into that pool, was the only movement which still went on around her, the only clock which marked the time, the only noise which reached her of all the noise made on the surface of the earth. To tell the whole, however, she also felt from time to time, in that cesspool of mire and darkness, something cold passing over her foot or her arm, and she shuddered. 
How long had she been there? She did not know. She had a recollection of a sentence of death pronounced somewhere, against someone, then having been herself carried away, and of waking up in darkness and silence, chilled to the heart. She had dragged herself along on her hands. Then iron rings that cut her ankles and chains had rattled. She had recognized the fact that all around her was wall, that below her there was a pavement covered with moisture and a truss of straw, but neither lamp nor air-hole. Then she had seated herself on that straw, and sometimes, for the sake of changing her attitude, on the last stone step in her dungeon. For a while she had tried to count the black minutes measured off for her by the drop of water, but that melancholy labor of an ailing brain had broken off of itself in her head and left her in stupor. At length, one day, or one night, for midnight and midday were of the same color in that sepulchre, she heard above her a louder noise than was usually made by the turnkey when he brought her bread and jug of water. She raised her head, and beheld a ray of reddish light passing through the crevices in the sort of trap-door contrived in the roof of the impasse. At the same time the heavy lock creaked, the trap grated on its rusty hinges, turned, and she beheld a lantern, a hand, and the lower portions of the bodies of two men, the door being too low to admit of her seeing their heads. The light pained her so acutely that she shut her eyes. When she opened them again the door was closed, the lantern was deposited on one of the steps of the staircase. A man alone stood before her. A monk's black cloak fell to his feet. A cowl of the same color concealed his face. Nothing was visible of his person, neither face nor hands. It was a long black shroud standing erect, and beneath which something could be felt moving. She gazed fixedly for several minutes at this sort of spectre but neither he nor she spoke. One would have pronounced them two statues confronting each other. Two things only seemed alive in that cavern, the wick of the lantern, which sputtered on account of the dampness of the atmosphere, and the drop of water from the roof, which cut this irregular sputtering with its monotonous splash, and made the light of the lantern quiver in concentric waves on the oily water of the pool. At last the prisoner broke the silence. "'Who are you?' "'A priest.' The words, the accent, the sound of his voice made her tremble. The priest continued in a hollow voice, "'Are you prepared?' "'For what?' "'To die.' "'Oh,' said she, "'will it be soon?' "'Tomorrow.' Her head, which had been raised with joy, fell back upon her breast. "'Tis very far away yet,' she murmured. "'Why could they not have done it to-day?' "'Then you are very unhappy?' asked the priest, after a silence. "'I am very cold,' she replied. She took her feet in her hands, a gesture habitual with unhappy wretches who are cold, as we have already seen in the case of the recluse of the Tour Roland, and her teeth chattered. The priest appeared to cast his eyes around the dungeon from beneath his cowl. "'Without light, without fire, 
in the water. It is horrible." Yes, she replied, with the bewildered air which unhappiness had given her. The day belongs to everyone. Why do they give me only night? Do you know, resumed the priest, after a fresh silence, why you are here? I thought I knew once, she said, passing her thin fingers over her eyelids, as though to aid her memory. But I know no longer. All at once she began to weep like a child. I should like to get away from here, sir. I am cold, I am afraid, and there are creatures which crawl over my body. Well, follow me. So saying, the priest took her arm. The unhappy girl was frozen to her very soul, yet that hand produced an impression of cold upon her. Oh, she murmured, tis the icy hand of death. Who are you? The priest threw back his cowl. She looked. It was the sinister visage which had so long pursued her, that demon's head which had appeared at La Falordelle's, above the head of her adored Phoebus that eye which she had last seen glittering beside a dagger. This apparition, always so fatal for her, and which had thus driven her on from misfortune to misfortune, even to torture, roused her from her stupor. It seemed to her that the sort of veil which had lain thick upon her memory was rent away. All the details of her melancholy adventure, from the nocturnal scene at La Falordelle's, to her condemnation to the Tournelle, recurred to her memory, no longer vague and confused as heretofore, but distinct, harsh, clear, palpitating, terrible. These souvenirs, half-effaced and almost obliterated by excess of suffering, were revived by the sombre figure which stood before her, as the approach of fire causes letters traced upon white paper with invisible ink to start out perfectly fresh. It seemed to her that all the wounds of her heart opened and bled simultaneously. "'Ha!' she cried, with her hands on her eyes and a convulsive trembling. "'Tis the priest!' Then she dropped her arms in discouragement and remained seated, with lowered head, eyes fixed on the ground, mute and still trembling. The priest gazed at her with the eye of a hawk, which has long been soaring in a circle from the heights of heaven over a poor lark cowering in the wheat, and has long been silently contracting the formidable circles of his flight, and has suddenly swooped down upon his prey like a flash of lightning, and holds it panting in his talons. She began to murmur in a low voice, Finish, finish the last blow!" And she drew her head down in terror between her shoulders, like the lamb awaiting the blow of the butcher's axe. "'So I inspire you with horror,' he said at length. She made no reply. "'Do I inspire you with horror?' he repeated. Her lips contracted, as though with a smile. "'Yes,' said she. The headsman scoffs at the condemned. Here he has been pursuing me, threatening me, terrifying me for months. Had it not been for him, my God, how happy it should have been! It was he who cast me into this abyss. Oh, heavens, 
It was he who killed him, my Phoebus." Here, bursting into sobs, and raising her eyes to the priest, "'Oh, wretch, who are you? What have I done to you? Do you then hate me so? Alas, what have you against me?' "'I love thee!' cried the priest. Her tears suddenly ceased. She gazed at him with the look of an idiot. He had fallen on his knees, and was devouring her with the eyes of flame. "'Dost thou understand? I love thee!' he cried again. "'What love!' said the unhappy girl with a shudder. He resumed. "'The love of a damned soul!' Both remained silent for several minutes, crushed beneath the weight of their emotions. He maddened, she stupefied. Listen, said the priest at last, and a singular calm had come over him. You shall know all I am about to tell you, that which I have hitherto hardly dared to say to myself, when, furtively interrogating my conscience, at those deep hours of the night, when it is so dark, that it seems as though God no longer saw us. Listen, before I knew you, young girl, I was happy. So was I, she sighed feebly. Do not interrupt me. Yes, I was happy, at least I believed myself to be so. I was pure, my soul was filled with limpid light. No head was raised more proudly and more radiantly than mine. Priests consulted me on chastity, doctors on doctrines. Yes, science was all in all to me. It was a sister to me, a sister sufficed. Not but that with age other ideas came to me. More than once my flesh had been moved as a woman's form passed by. That force of sex and blood, which, in the madness of youth, I had imagined that I had stifled forever, had more than once convulsively raised the chain of iron vows which bind me, a miserable wretch, to the cold stones of the altar. But fasting, prayer, study, the mortifications of the cloister, rendered my soul mistress of my body once more, and then I avoided women. Moreover, I had but to open a book, and all the impure mists of my brain vanished before the splendors of science. In a few moments I felt the gross things of earth flee far away, and I found myself once more calm, quieted, and serene, in the presence of the tranquil radiance of eternal truth. As long as the demon sent to attack me, only vague shadows of women who passed occasionally before my eyes in the church, in the streets, in the fields, and who hardly recurred to my dreams, I easily vanquished him. Alas! if the victory has not remained with me, it is the fault of God, who has not created man and the demon of equal force. Listen, one day— here the priest paused, and the prisoner heard sighs of anguish break from his breast with a sound of the death-rattle. He resumed. One day I was leaning on the window of my cell. What book was I reading then? Oh, all that is a whirlwind in my head. I was reading. 
the window opened upon a square. I heard a sound of tambourine and music. Annoyed at being thus disturbed in my reverie, I glanced into the square. What I beheld, others saw beside myself, and yet it was not a spectacle made for human eyes. There, in the middle of the pavement, it was midday, the sun was shining brightly, a creature was dancing. A creature so beautiful that God would have preferred her to the Virgin and have chosen her for his mother and have wished to be born of her if she had been in existence when he was made man. Her eyes were black and splendid. In the midst of her black locks some hairs through which the sun shone glistened like threads of gold. Her feet disappeared in their movements like the spokes of a rapidly turning wheel. Around her head, in her black tresses, there were disks of metal which glittered in the sun and formed a coronet of stars on her brow. Her dress, thick-set with spangles, blue and dotted with a thousand sparks, gleamed like a summer night. Her brown, supple arms twined and untwined around her waist like two scarfs. The form of her body was surprisingly beautiful. Oh, what a resplendent figure stood out, like something luminous, even in the sunlight! Alas, young girl, it was thou! Surprised, intoxicated, charmed, I allowed myself to gaze upon thee. I looked so long that I suddenly shuddered with terror. I felt that fate was seizing hold of me. The priest paused for a moment, overcome with emotion. Then he continued. Already half-fascinated, I tried to cling fast to something and hold myself back from falling. I recalled the snares which Satan had already set for me. The creature before my eyes possessed that superhuman beauty which can come only from heaven or hell. It was no simple girl made with a little of our earth and dimly lighted within by the vacillating ray of a woman's soul. It was an angel, but of shadows and flame, and not of light. At the moment when I was meditating thus, I beheld beside you a goat, a beast of witches, which smiled as it gazed at me. The midday sun gave him golden horns. Then I perceived the snare of the demon, and I no longer doubted that you had come from hell, and that you had come thence for my perdition. I believed it." Here the priest looked the prisoner full in the face, and added, coldly, "'I believe it still. Nevertheless, the charm operated little by little. Your dancing whirled through my brain. I felt the mysterious spell working within me. All that should have awakened was lulled to sleep, and like those who die in the snow I felt pleasure in allowing this sleep to draw on. All at once you began to sing. What could I do, unhappy wretch? Your song was still more charming than your dancing. I tried to flee. Impossible. I was nailed, rooted to the spot. It seemed to me that the marble of the pavement had risen to my knees. I was forced to remain until the end. My feet were like ice, my head was on fire. At last you took pity on me. You ceased to sing, you disappeared. 
the reflection of the dazzling vision, the reverberation of the enchanting music, disappeared by degrees from my eyes and my ears. Then I fell back into the embrasure of the window, more rigid, more feeble than a statue torn from its base. The vesper bell roused me. I drew myself up. I fled. But alas! Something within me had fallen never to rise again. Something had come upon me from which I could not flee." He made another pause and went on. Yes, dating from that day, there was within me a man whom I did not know. I tried to make use of all my remedies—the cloister, the altar, work, books, follies. Oh, how hollow does science sound when one in despair dashes against it a head full of passions! Do you know, young girl, that I saw thenceforth between my book and me? You, your shade, the image of the luminous apparition which had one day crossed the space before me. But this image had no longer the same color. It was somber, funereal gloomy as the black circle which long pursues the vision of the imprudent man who has gazed intently at the sun. Unable to rid myself of it, since I heard your song humming ever in my head, beheld your feet dancing always on my breviary, felt even at night, in my dreams, your form in contact with my own, I desired to see you again, to touch you, to know who you were to see whether I should really find you like the ideal image which I had retained of you, to shatter my dream, perchance, with reality. At all events, I hoped that a new impression would efface the first, and the first had become insupportable. I sought you. I saw you once more. Calamity! When I had seen you twice, I wanted to see you a thousand times. I wanted to see you always then how stop myself on that slope of hell then i no longer belong to myself the other end of the thread which the demon had attached to my wings he had fastened to his foot i became vagrant and wandering like yourself i waited for you under porches i stood on the lookout for you at the street corners i watched for you from the summit of my tower Every evening I return to myself more charmed, more despairing, more bewitched, more lost. I had learned who you were, an Egyptian, Bohemian, Gypsy, Zingara. How could I doubt the magic? Listen, I hoped that a trial would free me from the charm. A witch enchanted Bruno Dust. He had her burned and was cured. I knew it. I wanted to try the remedy. First I tried to have you forbidden the square in front of Notre Dame, hoping to forget you if you return no more. You paid no heed to it. You returned. Then the idea of abducting you occurred to me. One night I made the attempt. There were two of us. We already had you in our power when that miserable officer came up. He delivered you. Thus did he begin your unhappiness, mine and his own. Finally, no longer knowing what to do, and what was to become of me, I denounced you to the official. I thought 
that I should be cured like Bruno d'Ast. I also had a confused idea that a trial would deliver you into my hands, that, as a prisoner, I should hold you, I should have you, that there you could not escape from me, that you had already possessed me a sufficiently long time to give me the right to possess you in my turn. When one does wrong, one must do it thoroughly. Tis madness to halt midway in the monstrous. The extreme of crime has its deliriums of joy. A priest and a witch can mingle in delight upon the truss of straw in a dungeon. Accordingly, I denounced you. It was then that I terrified you when we met. The plot which I was weaving against you, the storm which I was heaping up above your head, burst from me in threats and lightning glances. Still, I hesitated. My project had its terrible sides, which made me shrink back. Perhaps I might have renounced it. Perhaps my hideous thought would have withered in my brain without bearing fruit. I thought that it would always depend upon me to follow up or discontinue this prosecution. But every evil thought is inexorable, and insists on becoming a deed. But where I believed myself to be all-powerful, fate was more powerful than I. Alas! tis fate which has seized you and delivered you to the terrible wheels of the machine which I had constructed doubly. Listen, I am nearing the end. One day, again the sun was shining brilliantly, I behold man pass me uttering your name and laughing, who carries sensuality in his eyes. Damnation! I followed him. You know the rest." He ceased. The young girl could find but one word. "'Oh, my Phoebus!' "'Not that name!' said the priest, grasping her arm violently. "'Utter not that name! Oh!' Miserable wretches that we are, tis that name which has ruined us! Or rather, we have ruined each other by the inexplicable play of fate. You are suffering, are you not? You are cold. The night makes you blind. The dungeon envelops you. But perhaps you still have some light in the bottom of your soul, were it only your childish love for that empty man who played with your heart, while I bear the dungeon within me. Within me there is winter, ice, despair. I have night in my soul. Do you know what I have suffered? I was present at your trial. I was seated on the official's bench, yes, under one of the priest's cowls. There were the contortions of the damned. When you were brought in, I was there. When you were questioned, I was there. Den of wolves, it was my crime, it was my gallows that I beheld being slowly reared over your head. I was there for every witness, every proof, every plea. I could count each of your steps in the painful path. I was still there when that ferocious beast—oh, I had not foreseen torture. Listen, I followed you to that chamber of anguish. I beheld you stripped and handled, half-naked, by the infamous hands of the tormentor. I beheld your foot, that foot which I would have given an empire to kiss and die, that foot beneath which to have my head crushed I should have felt such rapture, 
I beheld it encased in that horrible boot which converts the limbs of a living being into one bloody clod. O oh, wretch! While I looked on at that, I held beneath my shroud a dagger, with which I lacerated my breast. When you uttered that cry, I plunged it into my flesh. At a second cry, it would have entered my heart. Look, I believe that it still bleeds." He opened his cassock. His breast was in fact mangled as by the claw of a tiger, and on his side he had a large and badly healed wound. The prisoner recoiled with horror. "'Oh!' said the priest, "'young girl, have pity upon me! You think yourself unhappy? Alas, alas, you know not what unhappiness is! Oh, to love a woman, to be a priest, to be hated, to love with all the fury of one's soul, to feel that one would give for the least of her smiles, one's blood, one's vitals, one's fame, one's salvation, one's immortality and eternity, this life and the other. To regret that one is not a king, emperor, archangel, god, in order that one might place a greater slave beneath her feet, to clasp her night and day in one's dreams and one's thoughts, and to behold her in love with the trappings of a soldier, and to have nothing to offer her but a priest's dirty cassock which will inspire her with fear and disgust, to be present with one's jealousy and one's rage while she lavishes on a miserable, blustering imbecile treasures of love and beauty, to behold that body whose form burns you, that bosom which possesses so much sweetness, that flesh palpitate and blush beneath the kisses of another. Oh, heaven, to love her foot, her arm, her shoulder, to think of her blue veins, of her brown skin, until one writhes for whole nights together on the pavement of one's cell, and to behold all those caresses which one has dreamed of end in torture, to have succeeded only in stretching her upon the leather bed. Oh, these are the veritable pincers reddened in the fires of hell! Oh, blessed is he who is sawn between two planks, or torn in pieces by four horses! Do you know what that torture is, which is imposed upon you for long nights by your burning arteries, your bursting heart, your breaking head, your teeth-gnawed hands? Mad tormentors, which turn you incessantly, as upon a red-hot gridiron, to a thought of love, of jealousy, and of despair! Young girl, mercy! A truce for a moment! A few ashes on these live coals! Wipe away, I beseech you, the perspiration which trickles in great drops from my brow. Child, torture me with one hand, but caress me with the other. Have pity, young girl, have pity upon me." The priest writhed on the wet pavement, beating his head against the corners of the stone steps. The young girl gazed at him and listened to him. When he ceased, exhausted and panting, she repeated in a low voice, "'Oh, my Phoebus!' The priest dragged himself towards her on his knees. "'I beseech you!' he cried. 
If you have any heart, do not repulse me. Oh, I love you. I am a wretch. When you utter that name, unhappy girl, it is as though you crushed all the fibres of my heart between your teeth. Mercy! If you come from hell, I will go thither with you. I have done everything to that end. The hell where you are shall be paradise. The sight of you is more charming than that of God. Oh, speak! You will have none of me. I should have thought the mountains would be shaken in their foundations on the day when a woman would repulse such a love. Oh, if you only would! Oh, how happy we might be! We would flee. I would help you to flee. We would go somewhere. We would seek that spot on earth where the sun is brightest, the sky is bluest, where the trees are most luxuriant. We would love each other. We would pour our two souls into each other, and we would have a thirst for ourselves which we would quench in common and incessantly at the fountain of inexhaustible love." She interrupted with a terrible and thrilling laugh. "'Look, father, you have blood on your fingers!' The priest remained for several moments as though petrified, with his eyes fixed upon his hand. Well, yes, he resumed at last, with strange gentleness. Insult me, scoff at me, overwhelm me with scorn. But come, come, let us make haste. It is to be tomorrow, I tell you. The gibbet on the grave, you know it. It stands always ready. It is horrible to see you ride in that tumbrel. Oh, mercy, until now I have never felt the power of my love for you. Oh! Follow me. You shall take your time to love me after I have saved you. You shall hate me as long as you will. But come. Tomorrow, tomorrow, the gallows, your execution. Oh, save yourself, spare me." He seized her arm, and he was beside himself. He tried to drag her away. She fixed her eye intently on him. "'What has become of my Phoebus?' Ah said the priest, releasing her arm. You are pitiless. What has become of Phoebus? she repeated coldly. He is dead, cried the priest. Dead, said she, still icy and motionless. Then why do you talk to me of living? He was not listening to her. Oh, yes, said he, as though speaking to himself. He certainly must be dead. The blade pierced deeply. I believe I touched his heart with the point. Oh, my very soul was at the end of the dagger!" The young girl flung herself upon him like a raging tigress, and pushed him upon the steps of the staircase with supernatural force. "'Begone, monster! Begone, assassin! Leave me to die! May the blood of both of us make an eternal stain upon your brow! Be thine, priest! Never! Never! Nothing shall unite us, not hell itself! Go, accursed man! Never!" The priest had stumbled on the stairs. He silently disentangled his feet from the folds of his robe, picked up his lantern again, and slowly began the ascent of the steps which led to the door. He opened the door and passed through it. All at once the young girl beheld his head reappear. It wore a frightful expression, and he cried, 
hoarse with rage and despair. I tell you, he is dead! She fell face downwards upon the floor, and there was no longer any sound audible in the cell than the sob of the drop of water which made the pool palpitate amid the darkness. End of Book 8, Chapter 4《Book Eight, Chapter Five of the Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eight, Chapter Five The Mother. I do not believe that there is anything sweeter in the world than the ideas which awaken a mother's heart at the sight of her child's tiny shoe especially if it is a shoe for festivals, for Sunday, for baptism, the shoe embroidered to the very soul, a shoe in which the infant has not yet taken a step. That shoe has so much grace and daintiness, it is so impossible for it to walk, that it seems to the mother as though she saw her child. She smiles upon it, she kisses it, she talks to it, she asks herself whether there can actually be a foot so tiny, and if the child be absent, the pretty shoe suffices to place the sweet and fragile creature before her eyes. She thinks she sees it, she does see it, complete, living, joyous, with its delicate hands, its round head, its pure lips, its serene eyes, whose white is blue. If it is in winter, it is yonder, crawling on the carpet. It is laboriously climbing upon an ottoman, and the mother trembles lest it should approach the fire. If it is summer-time, it crawls about the yard, in the garden, plucks up the grass between the paving-stones, gazes innocently at the big dogs, the big horses, without fear, plays with the shells, with the flowers, and makes the gardener grumble because he finds sand in the flower-beds and earth in the paths. Everything laughs and shines and plays around it, like it, even the breath of air and the ray of sun, which vie with each other in disporting among the silky ringlets of its hair. The shoe shows all this to the mother, and makes her heart melt as fire melts wax. But when the child is lost, these thousand images of joy, of charms, of tenderness, which throng around the little shoe, become so many horrible things. The pretty, broidered shoe is no longer anything but an instrument of torture, which eternally crushes the heart of the mother. It is always the same fibre which vibrates, the tenderest and most sensitive. But instead of an angel caressing it, it is a demon who is wrenching at it. One May morning, when the sun was rising on one of those dark blue skies against which Garofalo loves to place his descents from the cross, the recluse of the Tour Roland heard a sound of wheels, of horses and irons in the Place de Greve. She was somewhat aroused by it, nodding her hair upon her ears in order to deafen herself 
and resumed her contemplation, on her knees, of the inanimate object which she had adored for fifteen years. This little shoe was the universe to her, as we have already said. Her thought was shut up in it, and was destined never more to quit it except at death. The sombre cave of the Tour Roland alone knew how many bitter imprecations, touching complaints, prayers and sobs, she had wafted to heaven in connection with that charming bauble of a rose-colored satin. Never was more despair bestowed upon a prettier and more graceful thing. It seemed as though her grief were breaking forth more violently than usual, and she could be heard outside lamenting in a loud and monotonous voice which rent the heart. "'Oh, my daughter,' she said, "'my daughter, my poor dear little child, so I shall never see thee more. It is over. It always seems to me that it happened yesterday. My God! My God! It would have been better not to give her to me than to take her away so soon. Did you not know that our children are part of ourselves, and that a mother who has lost her child no longer believes in God? Ah, wretch that I am to have gone out that day! Lord! Lord! to have taken her from me thus. You could never have looked at me with her, when I was joyously warming her at my fire, when she laughed as she suckled, when I made her tiny feet creep up my breast to my lips. Oh, if you had looked at that, my God, you would have taken pity on my joy. You would not have taken from me the only love which lingered in my heart. Was I then, Lord, so miserable a creature, that you could not look at me before condemning me? Alas, alas, here is the shoe, where is the foot, where is the rest, where is the child? My daughter, my daughter! What did they do with thee? Lord, give her back to me. My knees have been worn for fifteen years in praying to thee, my God. Is not that enough? Give her back to me one day, one hour, one minute, one minute, Lord, and then cast me to the demon for all eternity. Oh, if I only knew where the skirt of your garment trails, I would cling to it with both hands, and you would be obliged to give me back my child. Have you no pity on her pretty little shoe? Could you condemn a poor mother to this torture for fifteen years? Good virgin, good virgin of heaven! My infant Jesus has been taken from me, has been stolen from me. They devoured her on a heath, they drank her blood, they cracked her bones. Good virgin, have pity upon me. My daughter, I want my daughter. What is it to me that she is in paradise? I do not want your angel, I want my child.
I am a lioness. I want my whelp. Oh, I will writhe on the earth, I will break the stones with my forehead, and I will damn myself, and I will curse you, Lord, if you keep my child from me. You see plainly that my arms are all bitten, Lord. Has the good God no mercy? Oh, give me only salt and black bread, only let me have my daughter to warm me like a son. Alas, Lord my God, alas, Lord my God, I am only a vile sinner. But my daughter made me pious. I was full of religion for the love of her, and I beheld you through her smile as though an opening into heaven. Oh, if I could only once, just once more, a single time, put this shoe on her pretty little pink foot, I would die blessing you, good virgin. Ah, fifteen years! She will be grown up now, unhappy child. What? It is really true, then, I shall never see her more not even in heaven, for I shall not go there myself. Oh, what a misery to think that here is her shoe, and that that is all!" The unhappy woman flung herself upon that shoe, her consolation and her despair for so many years, and her vitals were rent with sobs as on the first day. Because for a mother who has lost her child, it is always the first day. That grief never grows old. The morning garments may grow white and threadbare. The heart remains dark." At that moment the fresh and joyous cries of children passed in front of the cell. Every time that children crossed her vision or struck her ear, the poor mother flung herself into the darkest corner of her sepulchre and one would have said that she sought to plunge her head into the stone in order not to hear them. This time, on the contrary, she drew herself upright with a start, and listened eagerly. One of the little boys had just said, "'They're going to hang a gypsy today.' With the abrupt leap of that spider which we have seen fling itself upon a fly at the trembling of its web, she rushed to her air-hole which opened, as the reader knows, on the Place de Greve. A ladder had, in fact, been raised up against the permanent gibbet, and the hangman's assistant was busying himself with adjusting the chains which had been rusted by the rain. There were some people standing about. The laughing group of children was already far away. The sacked nun sought with her eyes some passer-by whom she might question. All at once, Beside her cell she perceived a priest making a pretext of reading the public breviary, but who was much less occupied with the lectern of latticed iron than with the gallows, toward which he cast a fierce and gloomy glance from time to time. She recognized Monsieur, the archdeacon of José, a holy man. "'Father,' she inquired, "'whom are they about to hang yonder?' The priest looked at her and made no reply. She repeated her question. Then he said, "'I know not.' "'Some children said that it was a gypsy,' 
went on the recluse. "'I believe so,' said the priest. Then Paquette La Chantefleury burst into hyena-like laughter. "'Sister,' said the archdeacon, "'do you then hate the gypsies heartily?' "'Do I hate them?' exclaimed the recluse. "'They are vampires, stealers of children. They devoured my little daughter, my child, my only child. I have no longer any heart. They devoured it.' She was frightful. The priest looked at her coldly. "'There is one in particular whom I hate, and whom I have cursed,' she resumed. "'It is a young one, of the age which my daughter would be, if her mother had not eaten my daughter. Every time that that young viper passes in front of my cell, she sets my blood in a ferment.' "'Well, sister, rejoice,' said the priest icy as a sepulchral statue. That is the one whom you are about to see die." His head fell upon his bosom, and he moved slowly away. The recluse writhed her arms with joy. "'I predicted it for her, that she would ascend thither. Thanks, priest!' she cried. And she began to pace up and down with long strides before the grating of her window her hair dishevelled, her eyes flashing, with her shoulder striking against the wall, with the wild air of a female wolf in a cage, who has long been famished, and who feels the hour for her repast drawing near. End of Book Eight, Chapter Five Book Eight, Chapter Six of the Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eight, Chapter Six Three Human Hearts Differently Constructed. Phoebus was not dead, however. Men of that stamp die hard. When Master Philippe Lullier, advocate extraordinary of the king, had said to poor Esmeralda, he is dying, it was an error or a jest. When the archdeacon had repeated to the condemned girl, He is dead, the fact is that he knew nothing about it, but that he believed it, that he counted on it, that he did not doubt it, that he devoutly hoped it. It would have been too hard for him to give up favorable news of his rival to the woman whom he loved. Any man would have done the same in his place. It was not that Phoebus's wound had not been serious, but it had not been as much so as the archdeacon believed. The physician, to whom the soldiers of the watch had carried him at the first moment, had feared for his life during the space of a week, and had even told him so in Latin. But youth had gained the upper hand, and, as frequently happens, in spite of prognostications and diagnoses, Nature had amused herself by saving the sick man under the physician's very nose. It was while he was still lying on the leech's pallet that he had submitted to the interrogations of Philippe Lullier and the official inquisitors, which had annoyed him greatly. Hence, one fine morning, feeling himself better, 
he had left his golden spurs with the leech as payment, and had slipped away. This had not, however, interfered with the progress of the affair. Justice, at that epoch, troubled itself very little about the clearness and definiteness of a criminal suit. Provided that the accused was hung, that was all that was necessary. Now the judge had plenty of proofs against La Esmeralda. They had supposed Phoebus to be dead, and that was the end of the matter. Phoebus, on his side, had not fled far. He had simply rejoined his company in garrison at Cue-en-Brie, in the Isle de France, a few stages from Paris. After all, it did not please him in the least to appear in this suit. He had a vague feeling that he should play a ridiculous figure in it. On the whole, he did not know what to think of the whole affair. Superstitious, and not given to devoutness, like every soldier who is only a soldier, when he came to question himself about this adventure, he did not feel assured as to the goat, as to the singular fashion in which he had met La Esmeralda, as to the no less strange manner in which she had allowed him to divine her love, as to her character as a gypsy, and lastly, as to the surly monk. He perceived in all these incidents much more magic than love, probably a sorceress, perhaps the devil. A comedy, in short, or to speak in the language of that day, a very disagreeable mystery, in which he played a very awkward part, the role of blows and derision. The captain was quite put out of countenance about it. He experienced that sort of shame which our La Fontaine has so admirably defined. Ashamed as a fox who has been caught by a fowl. Moreover, he hoped that the affair would not get noised abroad, that his name would hardly be pronounced in it, and that in any case it would not go beyond the courts of the Tournelle. In this he was not mistaken. There was then no Gazette de Tribunaux, and as not a week passed which had not its counterfeiter to boil, or its witch to hang, or its heretic to burn, at some one of the innumerable justices of Paris, people were so accustomed to seeing in all the squares of the ancient feudal Thémie, bare-armed, with sleeves stripped up, performing her duty at the gibbets, the ladders, and the pillories, that they hardly paid any heed to it. Fashionable society of that day hardly knew the name of the victim who passed by at the corner of the street, and it was the populace at the most who regaled themselves with this coarse fare. An execution was an habitual incident of the public highways, like the brazing-pan of the baker, or the slaughter-house of the knacker. The executioner was only a sort of butcher of a little deeper dye than the rest. Hence, Phoebus's mind was soon at ease on the score of the enchantress Esmeralda, or similar, as he called her, concerning the blow from the dagger of the Bohemian or of the surly monk, it mattered little which to him, and as to the issue of the trial. But as soon as his heart was vacant in that direction, Fleur de Lis returned to it. Captain Phoebus's heart, like the physics of that day, abhorred a vacuum. Cuambri was a very insipid place to stay at then, a village of farriers, 
and cowgirls with chapped hands, a long line of poor dwellings and thatched cottages, which borders on the Grand Road on both sides for half a league. A tale, Q, in short, as its name imports. Fleur de Lis was his last passion but one, a pretty girl, a charming dowry. Accordingly, one fine morning, quite cured, and assuming that, after the lapse of two months, the bohemian affair must be completely finished and forgotten, the amorous cavalier arrived on a prancing horse at the door of the Gondolorier mansion. He paid no attention to a tolerably numerous rabble which had assembled in the Place du Parvis before the portal of Notre Dame. He remembered that it was the month of May. He supposed that it was some procession, some Pentecost, some festival, hitched his horse to the ring at the door, and gaily ascended the stairs to his beautiful betrothed. She was alone with her mother. The scene of the witch, her goat, her cursed alphabet, and Phoebus's long absences still weighed on Fleur de Lise's heart. Nevertheless, when she beheld her captain enter, she thought him so handsome, his doublet so new, his baldric so shining, and his air so impassioned, that she blushed with pleasure. The noble damsel herself was more charming than ever. Her magnificent blonde hair was plaited in a ravishing manner. She was dressed entirely in that sky-blue which becomes fair people so well, a bit of coquetry which she had learned from Cologne, and her eyes were swimming in that languor of love which becomes them still better. Phoebus, who had seen nothing in the line of beauty, since he left the village maids of Cue and Brie, was intoxicated with fleur-de-lis, which imparted to our officer so eager and gallant an air that his peace was immediately made. Madame de Gondelaurier herself, still maternally seated in her big armchair, had not the heart to scold him. As for Fleur de Lise's reproaches, they expired in tender cooings. The young girl was seated near the window, still embroidering her grotto of Neptune. The captain was leaning over the back of her chair, and she was addressing her caressing reproaches to him in a low voice. "'What has become of you these two long months, wicked man?' "'I swear to you,' replied Phoebus, somewhat embarrassed by the question, "'that you are beautiful enough to set an archbishop to dreaming.' She could not repress a smile. "'Good, good, sir.' Let my beauty alone, and answer my question. A fine beauty, in sooth. Well, my dear cousin, I was recalled to the garrison. And where is that, if you please? And why did not you come to say farewell? At Cuanbree. Phoebus was delighted with the first question, which helped him to avoid the second. But that is quite close by, monsieur. Why did you not come to see me a single time? Here Phoebus was rather seriously embarrassed. Because, the service, and then, charming cousin, I have been ill. Ill? she repeated in alarm. Yes, wounded. Wounded? She, poor child, was completely upset. Oh, do not be frightened at that, 
said Phoebus, carelessly. It was nothing. A quarrel, a sword-cut. What is that to you?" "'What is that to me?' exclaimed Fleur-de-Lis, raising her beautiful eyes filled with tears. "'Oh, you do not say what you think when you speak thus. What sword-cut was that? I wish to know all.' "'Well, my dear fair one, I had a falling out with Mahé Fadi, you know, the lieutenant of Saint-Germain-en-Layet, and we ripped out a few inches of skin for each other. That is all." The mendacious captain was perfectly well aware that an affair of honor always makes a man stand well in the eyes of a woman. In fact, Fleur-de-Lis looked him full in the face, all agitated with fear, pleasure, and admiration. Still, she was not completely reassured. "'Provided that you are wholly cured, my Phoebus,' said she, "'I do not know your Maé Fedi, but he is a villainous man. And whence arose this quarrel?' Here Phoebus, whose imagination was endowed with but mediocre power of creation, began to find himself in a quandary as to a means of extricating himself for his prowess. Oh, how do I know? A mere nothing, a horse, a remark. Fair cousin, he exclaimed, for the sake of changing the conversation, what noise is this in the cathedral square? He approached the window. Oh, mon Dieu, fair cousin, how many people there are on the place? I know not, said Fleur-de-Lis. It appears that a witch is to do penance this morning before the church, and thereafter to be hung." The captain was so thoroughly persuaded that La Esmeralda's affair was concluded that he was but little disturbed by Fleur de Lise's words. Still he asked her one or two questions. "'What is the name of this witch?' "'I do not know,' she replied. "'And what is she said to have done?' She shrugged her white shoulders. I know not. Oh, mon Dieu, Jésus, said her mother, there are so many witches nowadays that I dare say they burn them without knowing their names. One might as well seek the name of every cloud in the sky. After all, one may be tranquil. The good God keeps his register. Here the venerable Dame rose and came to the window. "'Good Lord, you are right, Phoebus,' said she. "'The rabble is indeed great. There are people on all the roofs, blessed be God. Do you know, Phoebus, this reminds me of my best days, the entrance of King the Seventh, when also there were many people. I no longer remember in what year that was. When I speak of this to you, it produces upon you the effect, does it not, the effect of something very old.' and upon me of something very young. Oh, the crowd was far finer than at the present day. They even stood upon the maculations of the Porte Saint-Antoine. The king had the queen on a pillion, and after their highnesses came all the ladies mounted behind all the lords. I remember that they laughed loudly, because, beside Emmanuel de Garland, who was very short of stature, there rode the Sieur Montefelon, a chevalier of gigantic size, who had killed heaps of English. 
It was very fine. A procession of all the gentlemen of France, with their oriflamme waving red before the eye. There were some with pennons, and some with banners. How can I tell? The Sire de Combe with a pennon, Jean de Chaudmorant with a banner, the Sire de Courcy with a banner, and a more ample one than any of the others, except the Duc de Bourbon. Alas! Tis a sad thing to think that all that has existed, and exists no longer." The two lovers were not listening to the venerable dowager. Phoebus had returned, and was leaning on the back of his betrothed's chair, a charming post whence his libertine glance plunged into all the openings of Fleur-de-Lise's gorget. This gorget gaped so conveniently, and allowed him to see so many exquisite things, and to divine so many more, that Phoebus, dazzled by this skin with its gleams of satin, said to himself, How can any one love anything but a fair skin? Both were silent. The young girl raised sweet and raptured eyes to him from time to time, and their hair mingled in a ray of spring sunshine. Phoebus, said Fleur de Lis suddenly, in a low voice, we are to be married three months hence. Swear to me that you have never loved any other woman than myself." "'I swear it, fair angel,' replied Phoebus, and his passionate glances aided the sincere tone of his voice in convincing Fleur-de-Lis. Meanwhile the good mother, charmed to see the betrothed pair on terms of such perfect understanding, had just quitted the apartment to attend to some domestic matter. Phoebus observed it, and this so emboldened the adventurous captain that very strange ideas mounted to his brain. Fleur-de-Lis loved him. He was her betrothed. She was alone with him. His former taste for her had reawakened, not with all its freshness, but with all its ardor. After all, there is no great harm in tasting one's wheat while it is still in the blade." I do not know whether these ideas passed through his mind, but one thing is certain, that Fleur-de-Lis was suddenly alarmed by the expression of his glance. She looked round, and saw that her mother was no longer there. "'Good heavens!' said she, blushing and uneasy. How very warm I am!" "'I think, in fact,' replied Phoebus, "'that it cannot be far from midday. The sun is troublesome. We need only lower the curtains.' "'No, no!' exclaimed the poor little thing. "'On the contrary, I need air!' And, like a fawn who feels the breath of the pack of hounds, she rose, ran to the window, opened it, and rushed upon the balcony. Phoebus, much discomfited, followed her. The Place du Parvis Notre Dame, upon which the balcony looked, as the reader knows, presented at that moment a singular and sinister spectacle, which caused the fright of the timid fleur-de-lis to change its nature. An immense crowd, which overflowed into all the neighboring streets, encumbered the Place, properly speaking. 
The little wall, breast-high, which surrounded the place, would not have sufficed to keep it free had it not been lined with a thick hedge of sergeants and huckpeteers, culverines in hand. Thanks to this thicket of pikes and arquebuses, the parvis was empty. Its entrance was guarded by a force of halberdiers, with the armorial bearings of the bishop. The large doors of the church were closed, and formed a contrast with the innumerable windows on the place, which, open to their very gables, allowed a view of thousands of heads heaped up almost like the piles of bullets in a park of artillery. The surface of this rabble was dingy, dirty, earthy. The spectacle which it was expecting was evidently one of the sort which possessed the privilege of bringing out and calling together the vilest among the populace. Nothing is so hideous as the noise which was made by that swarm of yellow caps and dirty heads. In that throng there were more laughs than cries, more women than men. From time to time a sharp and vibrating voice pierced the general clamour. Away, Mahie Balifre, is she to be hung yonder? Fool, tis here that she is to make her apology in her shift. The good God is going to cough Latin in her face. That is always done here at midday. If tis the gallows that you wish, go to the greve. I will go there afterwards. Tell me, La Boucambri, is it true that she has refused a confessor? It appears so, La Bachon. You see what a pagan she is. Tis the custom, monsieur. The bailiff of the courts is bound to deliver the malefactor ready judged for execution, if he be a layman, to the provost of Paris, if a clerk, to the official of the bishopric. Thank you, sir. Oh, God, said Fleur de Lis, the poor creature. This thought filled with sadness the glance which he cast upon the populace. The captain, much more occupied with her than with that pack of the rabble, was amorously rumpling her girdle behind. She turned round, entreating and smiling. "'Please let me alone, Phoebus. If my mother were to return, she would see your hand.' At that moment midday rang slowly out from the clock of Notre Dame. A murmur of satisfaction broke out in the crowd. The last vibration of the twelfth stroke had hardly died away when all heads surged like the waves beneath a squall, and an immense shout went up from the pavement, the windows, and the roofs. "'There she is!' Fleur-de-Lis pressed her hands to her eyes, that she might not see. "'Charming girl,' said Phoebus, "'do you wish to withdraw?' No, she replied, and she opened through curiosity the eyes which she had closed through fear. A tumbrel, drawn by a stout Norman horse, and all surrounded by cavalry in violet livery with white crosses, had just debouched upon the place through the Rue Saint-Pierre-aux-Boeufs. The sergeants of the watch were clearing a passage for it through the crowd by stout blows from their clubs. Beside the cart rode several officers of justice and police, recognizable by their black costume and their awkwardness in the saddle. Master Jacques Charmelou paraded at their head. In the fatal cart sat a young girl with her arms tied behind her back, and with no priest beside her. She was in her shift, 
Her long black hair, the fashion then was to cut it off only at the foot of the gallows, fell in disorder upon her half-bared throat and shoulders. Athwart that waving hair, more glossy than the plumage of a raven, a thick, rough gray rope was visible, twisted and knotted, chafing her delicate collarbones, and twining round the charming neck of the poor girl, like an earthworm round a flower. Beneath that rope glittered a tiny amulet ornamented with bits of green glass, which had been left to her, no doubt, because nothing is refused to those who are about to die. The spectators in the windows could see in the bottom of the cart her naked legs, which she strove to hide beneath her, as by a final feminine instinct. At her feet lay a little goat, bound. The condemned girl held together with her teeth her imperfectly fastened shift. One would have said that she suffered still more in her misery from being thus exposed almost naked to the eyes of all. Alas, modesty is not made for such shocks. Jesus, said Fleur de Lis hastily to the captain, look, fair cousin, tis that wretched Bohemian with the goat. So saying, she turned to Phoebus. His eyes were fixed on the tumbrel. He was very pale. What, Bohemian with the goat? he stammered. What, resumed Fleur de Lis, do you not remember? Phoebus interrupted her. I do not know what you mean. He made a step to re-enter the room, but Fleur-de-Lis, whose jealousy, previously so vividly aroused by this same gypsy, had just been reawakened, Fleur-de-Lis gave him a look full of penetration and distrust. She vaguely recalled at that moment having heard of a captain mixed up in the trial of that witch. "'What is the matter with you?' she said to Phoebus. "'One would say that this woman had disturbed you.' Phoebus forced a sneer. Me? Not the least in the world. Ah, yes, certainly. Remain, then, she continued imperiously, and let us see the end. The unlucky captain was obliged to remain. He was somewhat reassured by the fact that the condemned girl never removed her eyes from the bottom of the cart. It was but too surely La Esmeralda. In this last stage of opprobrium and misfortune she was still beautiful. Her great black eyes appeared still larger, because of the emaciation of her cheeks. Her pale profile was pure and sublime. She resembled what she had been, in the same degree that a virgin by Masaccio resembles a virgin of Raphael, weaker, thinner, more delicate. Moreover, there was nothing in her which was not shaken in some sort, and which, with the exception of her modesty, she did not let go at will, so profoundly had she been broken by stupor and despair. Her body bounded at every jolt of the tumbrel, like a dead or broken thing. Her gaze was dull and imbecile. A tear was still visible in her eyes, but motionless and frozen, so to speak. Meanwhile, the lugubrious cavalcade has traversed the crowd amid cries of joy and curious attitudes. But as a faithful historian, we must state that on beholding her so beautiful, so depressed, many were moved with pity, even among the hardest of them. The tumbrel had entered the parvis. It halted before the central portal. The escort ranged themselves in line on both sides. 
the crowd became silent, and, in the midst of this silence, full of anxiety and solemnity, the two leaves of the grand door swung back, as of themselves, on their hinges, which gave a creak like the sound of a fife. Then there became visible in all its length the deep, gloomy church, hung in black, sparely lighted with a few candles gleaming afar off on the principal altar, opened in the midst of the place which was dazzling with light, like the mouth of a cavern. At the very extremity, in the gloom of the apse, a gigantic silver cross was visible against a black drapery, which hung from the vault to the pavement. The whole nave was deserted but a few heads of priests could be seen moving confusedly in the distant choir-stalls, and at the moment when the great door opened there escaped from the church a loud, solemn, and monotonous chanting, which cast over the head of the condemned girl, in gusts, fragments of melancholy psalms. Non timebo milia populae circumdantus me exurge domine, solvum me fac deus. Salvo mi fac Deus, coniam introverunt aequoe esco ad animam miam, in sum in limo profundi, et non es substantia. At the same time, another voice, separate from the choir, intoned upon the steps of the chief altar this melancholy offertory. Qui verbum meum audit, et credit aequi mesit me, hebet vitam oternam et injusticium, non venit, sed transit morte im vitam. He that heareth my word, and believeth in him that sent me, hath eternal life, and hath not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. This chant, which a few old men buried in the gloom, sang from afar over that beautiful creature, full of youth and life, caressed by the warm air of spring, inundated with sunlight, was the mass for the dead. The people listened devoutly. The unhappy girl seemed to lose her sight and her consciousness in the obscure interior of the church. Her white lips moved as though in prayer and the headsman's assistant, who approached to assist her to alight from the cart, heard her repeating this word in a low tone, Phoebus. They untied her hands, made her alight, accompanied by her goat, which had also been unbound, and which bleated with joy at finding itself free, and they made her walk barefoot on the hard pavement to the foot of the steps leading to the door. The rope about her neck trailed behind her one would have said it was a serpent following her. Then the chanting in the church ceased. A great golden cross and a row of wax candles began to move through the gloom. The halberds of the motley beetles clanked, and a few moments later a long procession of priests in chasubles and deacons in dalmatics marched gravely towards the condemned girl, as they drawled their song, spread out before her view and that of the crowd but her glance rested on the one who marched at the head, immediately after the cross-bearer. "'Oh,' she said in a low voice, and with a shudder, "'tis he again, the priest!' It was, in fact, the archdeacon. On his left he had the sub-chanter, on his right the chanter, armed with his official wand. 
He advanced with head thrown back, his eyes fixed and wide open, intoning in a strong voice, Deventre inferi clamavi, et exaudisti vocem miam, et projacisti mi in profundum in corde mans, et flumem circum didet me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. At the moment when he made his appearance in the full daylight beneath the lofty arched portal, enveloped in an ample cope of silver barred with a black cross, he was so pale that more than one person in the crowd thought that one of the marble bishops who knelt on the sepulchral stones of the choir had risen and was come to receive upon the brink of the tomb the woman who was about to die. She, no less pale, no less like a statue, had hardly noticed that they had placed in her hand a heavy lighted candle of yellow wax. She had not heard the yelping voice of the clerk reading the fatal contents of the apology. When they told her to respond with Amen, she responded Amen. She only recovered life and force when she beheld the priest make a sign to her guards to withdraw, and himself advance alone towards her. Then she felt her blood boil in her head, and a remnant of indignation flashed up in that soul already benumbed and cold. The archdeacon approached her slowly. Even in that extremity she beheld him cast an eye sparkling with sensuality, jealousy, and desire, over her exposed form. Then he said aloud, "'Young girl, have you asked God's pardon for your faults and shortcomings?' He bent down to her ear, and added, the spectator supposed that he was receiving her last confession, "'Will you have me? I can still save you.' She looked intently at him. "'Begone, demon, or I will denounce you!' He gave vent to a horrible smile. "'You will not be believed. You will only add a scandal to a crime. Reply quickly. Will you have me?' "'What have you done with my Phoebus?' "'He is dead,' said the priest. At that moment the wretched archdeacon raised his head mechanically, and beheld at the other end of the place, in the balcony of the Gondolarier mansion, the captain standing beside Fleur-de-Lis. He staggered, passed his hand across his eyes, looked again, muttered a curse, and all his features were violently contorted. "'Well, die, then!' he hissed between his teeth. "'No one shall have you!' Then, raising his hand over the gypsy, he exclaimed in a funereal voice, "'E nunc anime anseps, et sit tibi deus misenicors!' Go now, soul, trembling in the balance, and God have mercy upon thee." This was the dread formula with which it was the custom to conclude these gloomy ceremonies. It was the signal agreed upon between the priest and the executioner. The crowd knelt. Curie eleison, said the priests, who had remained beneath the arch of the portal. Lord have mercy upon us. Curie eleison, repeated the throng in that murmur which runs over all heads like the waves of a troubled sea. Amen, said the archdeacon. He turned his back to the condemned girl, 
His head sank upon his breast once more. He crossed his hands and rejoined his escort of priests, and a moment later he was seen to disappear, with the cross, the candles, and the copes, beneath the misty arches of the cathedral, and his sonorous voice was extinguished by degrees in the choir, as he chanted this verse of despair. Omnes gurgites tue et fluctos tue super me transeriunt. All thy waves and thy billows have gone over me. At the same time, the intermittent clash of the iron butts of the beetles' halberds, gradually dying away among the columns of the nave, produced the effect of a clock-hammer striking the last hour of the condemned. The doors of Notre-Dame remained open, allowing a view of the empty, desolate church, draped in mourning, without candles, and without voices. The condemned girl remained motionless in her place, waiting to be disposed of. One of the sergeants of police was obliged to notify Master Charmeloux of the fact, as the latter, during this entire scene, had been engaged in studying the bas-relief of the grand portal, which represents, according to some, the sacrifice of Abraham, according to others, the philosopher's alchemical operation, the sun being figured forth by the angel, the fire by the faggot, the artisan by Abraham. There was considerable difficulty in drawing him away from that contemplation, but at length he turned round, and at a signal which he gave, two men, clad in yellow, the executioner's assistants, approached the gypsy to bind her hands once more. The unhappy creature, at the moment of mounting once again the fatal cart and proceeding to her last halting-place, was seized, possibly, with some poignant clinging to life. She raised her dry red eyes to heaven, to the sun, to the silvery clouds, cut here and there by a blue trapezium or triangle, then she lowered them to objects around her, to the earth, the throng, the houses. All at once, while the yellow man was binding her elbows, she uttered a terrible cry, a cry of joy. Yonder, on that balcony, at the corner of the place, she had just caught sight of him, of her friend, her lord, Phoebus, the other apparition of her life. The judge had lied, the priest had lied. It was certainly he, she could not doubt it. He was there, handsome, alive, dressed in his brilliant uniform, his plume on his head, his sword by his side. "'Phoebus!' she cried. "'My Phoebus!' and she tried to stretch toward him arms, trembling with love and rapture, but they were bound. Then she saw the captain frown, a beautiful young girl, who was leaning against him, gazed at him with disdainful lips and irritated eyes. Then Phoebus uttered some words which did not reach her, and both disappeared precipitately behind the window opening upon the balcony, which closed after them. "'Phoebus!' she cried wildly. Can it be you believe it?" A monstrous thought had just presented itself to her. She remembered that she had been condemned to death for murder committed on the person of Phoebus de Chateaupay. She had borne up until that moment, but this last blow was too harsh. She fell lifeless on the pavement. "'Come,' said Charmeloux, "'carry her to the cart and make an end of it. No one had yet observed in the gallery of the statues of the kings, carved directly above the arches of the portal, a strange spectator, 
who had, up to that time, observed everything with such impassiveness, with a neck so strained, a visage so hideous, that in his motley accoutrement of red and violet he might have been taken for one of those stone monsters through whose mouths the long gutters of the cathedral have discharged their waters for six hundred years. This spectator had missed nothing that had taken place since midday, in front of the portal of Notre Dame. And at the very beginning he had securely fastened to one of the small columns a large knotted rope, one end of which trailed on the flight of steps below. This being done, he began to look on tranquilly, whistling from time to time when a blackbird flitted past. Suddenly, at the moment when the superintendent's assistants were preparing to execute Charmeleau's phlegmatic order, he threw his leg over the balustrade of the gallery, seized the rope with his feet, his knees and his hands. Then he was seen to glide down the façade, as a drop of rain slips down a window-pane, rushed to the two executioners with the swiftness of a cat which has fallen from a roof, knocked them down with two enormous fists, pick up the gypsy with one hand, as a child would her doll, and dash back into the church with a single bound, lifting the young girl above his head, and crying in a formidable voice, Sanctuary! This was done with such rapidity that, had it taken place at night, the whole of it could have been seen in the space of a single flash of lightning. "'Sanctuary! Sanctuary!' repeated the crowd, and the clapping of ten thousand hands made Quasimodo's single eye sparkle with joy and pride. This shock restored the condemned girl to her senses. She raised her eyelids, looked at Quasimodo, then closed them again suddenly, as though terrified by her deliverer. Charmeleu was stupefied as well as the executioners and the entire escort. In fact, within the bounds of Notre Dame the condemned girl could not be touched. The cathedral was a place of refuge. All temporal jurisdiction expired upon its threshold. Quasimodo had halted beneath the great portal. His huge feet seemed as solid on the pavement of the church as the heavy Roman pillars. His great bushy head sat low between his shoulders, like the heads of lions, who also have a mane and no neck. He held the young girl, who was quivering all over, suspended from his horny hands like a white drapery. But he carried her with as much care as though he feared to break her or blight her. One would have said that he felt that she was a delicate, exquisite, precious thing, made for other hands than his. There were moments when he looked as if not daring to touch her, even with his breath. Then, all at once, he would press her forcibly in his arms, against his angular bosom, like his own possession, his treasure, as the mother of that child would have done. His gnome's eye, fastened upon her, inundated her with tenderness, sadness, and pity, and was suddenly raised filled with lightnings. Then the women laughed and wept the crowd stamped with enthusiasm, for at that moment Quasimodo had a beauty of his own. He was handsome. He, that orphan, that foundling, that outcast, he felt himself august and strong. He gazed in the face of that society from which he was banished, and which he had so powerfully intervened, of that human justice from which he had wrenched its prey of all those tigers whose jaws were forced to remain empty, 
of those policemen, those judges, those executioners, of all that force of the king which he, the meanest of creatures, had just broken with the force of God. And then it was touching to behold this protection which had fallen from a being so hideous upon a being so unhappy, a creature condemned to death saved by Quasimodo. They were two extremes of natural and social wretchedness, coming into contact and aiding each other. Meanwhile, after several moments of triumph, Quasimodo had plunged abruptly into the church with his burden. The populace, fond of all prowess, sought him with their eyes beneath the gloomy nave, regretting that he had so speedily disappeared from their acclamations. All at once he was seen to reappear at one of the extremities of the gallery of the kings of France. He traversed it, running like a madman, raising his conquest high in his arms and shouting, "'Sanctuary!' The crowd broke forth, too, into fresh applause. The gallery passed, he plunged once more into the interior of the church. A moment later he reappeared upon the upper platform, with the gypsy still in his arms, still running madly, still crying, "'Sanctuary!' and the throng applauded. Finally he made his appearance for the third time upon the summit of the tower, where hung the great bell. From that point he seemed to be showing to the entire city the girl whom he had saved, and his voice of thunder, that voice which was so rarely heard, and which he never heard himself, repeated thrice with frenzy, even to the clouds, "'Sanctuary! Sanctuary! Sanctuary!' "'Noel! Noel!' shouted the populace in its turn and that immense acclamation flew to astonish the crowd assembled at the greve on the other bank, and the recluse who was still waiting with her eyes riveted on the gibbet. End of Book Eight, Chapter Six Book Nine, Chapter One of *The Hunchback of Notre Dame* by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter One, Delirium. Claude Frollo was no longer in Notre Dame when his adopted son so abruptly cut the fatal web in which the archdeacon and the gypsy were entangled. On returning to the sacristy, he had torn off his alb, cope, and stole had flung all into the hands of the stupefied beetle, had made his escape through the private door of the cloister, had ordered a boatman of the terrain to transport him to the left bank of the Seine, and had plunged into the hilly streets of the university, not knowing whither he was going, encountering at every step groups of men and women who were hurrying joyously towards the Pont Saint-Michel, in the hope of still arriving in time to see the witch hung there pale, wild, more troubled, more blind, and more fierce than a night-bird let loose and pursued by a troop of children in broad daylight. He no longer knew where he was, what he thought, or whether he was dreaming. He went forward, walking, running, taking any street at haphazard, making no choice, only urged ever onward away from the greve, the horrible greve, which he felt confusedly to be behind him. 
In this manner he skirted Mount Saint-Geneviève and finally emerged from the town by the Port Saint-Victor. He continued his flight as long as he could see, when he turned round, the turreted enclosure of the university and the rare houses of the suburb. But when at length a rise of ground had completely concealed from him that odious Paris, when he could believe himself to be a hundred leagues distant from it, in the fields, in the desert, he halted, and it seemed to him that he breathed more freely. Then frightful ideas thronged his mind. Once more he could see clearly into his soul, and he shuddered. He thought of that unhappy girl who had destroyed him, and whom he had destroyed. He cast a haggard eye over the double, tortuous way which fate had caused their two destinies to pursue up to their point of intersection, where it had dashed them against each other without mercy. He meditated on the folly of eternal vows, on the vanity of chastity, of science, of religion, of virtue, on the uselessness of God. He plunged to his heart's content in evil thoughts, and in proportion, as he sank deeper, he felt a satanic laugh burst forth within him. And as he thus sifted his soul to the bottom, when he perceived how large a space nature had prepared there for the passions, he sneered still more bitterly. He stirred up in the depths of his heart all his hatred, all his malevolence, and with the cold glance of a physician who examines a patient, he recognized the fact that this malevolence was nothing but vitiated love. That love, that source of every virtue in man, turned to horrible things in the heart of a priest, and that a man constituted like himself, in making himself a priest, made himself a demon. Then he laughed frightfully, and suddenly became pale again, when he considered the most sinister side of his fatal passion, of that corrosive, venomous, malignant, implacable love, which had ended only in the gibbet for one of them and in hell for the other. Condemnation for her, damnation for him. And then his laughter came again, when he reflected that Phoebus was alive, that after all the captain lived, was gay and happy, had handsomer doublets than ever, and a new mistress whom he was conducting to see the old one hanged. His sneer redoubled its bitterness when he reflected that out of the living beings whose death he had desired, the gypsy, the only creature whom he did not hate, was the only one who had not escaped him. Then from the captain his thought passed to the people, and there came to him a jealousy of an unprecedented sort. He reflected that the people also, the entire populace, had had before their eyes the woman whom he loved exposed almost naked. He writhed his arms with agony as he thought that the woman whose form, caught by him alone in the darkness, would have been supreme happiness, had been delivered up in broad daylight at full noonday to a whole people, clad as for a night of voluptuousness. He wept with rage over all these mysteries of love, profaned, soiled, laid bare, withered forever. He wept with rage as he pictured to himself how many impure looks had been gratified at the sight of that badly fastened shift, and that this beautiful girl, this virgin lily, this cup of modesty and delight, to which he would have dared to place his lips only trembling, had just been transformed into a sort of public bowl 
whereat the vilest populace of Paris, thieves, beggars, lackeys, had come to quaff in common an audacious, impure, and depraved pleasure. And when he sought to picture to himself the happiness which he might have found upon earth if she had not been a gypsy, if he had not been a priest, if Phoebus had not existed, and if she had loved him, when he pictured to himself that a life of serenity and love would have been possible to him also, even to him, that there were at that very moment, here and there upon the earth, happy couples spending the hours in sweet converse beneath orange-trees, on the banks of brooks, in the presence of a setting sun, of a starry night. And that if God had so willed, he might have formed with her one of those blessed couples. His heart melted in tenderness and despair. Oh, she! Still she! It was this fixed idea which returned incessantly, which tortured him, which ate into his brain and rent his vitals. He did not regret, he did not repent. All that he had done he was ready to do again. He preferred to behold her in the hands of the executioner, rather than in the arms of the captain. But he suffered. He suffered so that at intervals he tore out handfuls of his hair to see whether it were not turning white. Among other moments there came one, when it occurred to him that it was perhaps the very minute when the hideous chain which he had seen that morning was pressing its iron noose closer about that frail and graceful neck. This thought caused the perspiration to start from every pore. There was another moment, when, while laughing diabolically at himself, he represented to himself La Esmeralda as he had seen her on that first day, lively, careless, joyous, gaily attired, dancing, winged, harmonious, and La Esmeralda of the last day, in her scanty shift, with a rope about her neck, mounting slowly with her bare feet the angular ladder of the gallows. He figured to himself this double picture in such a manner that he gave vent to a terrible cry. While this hurricane of despair overturned, broke, tore up, bent, uprooted everything in his soul, he gazed at nature around him. At his feet some chickens were searching the thickets and pecking, enameled beetles ran about in the sun. Overhead some groups of dappled gray clouds were floating across the blue sky. On the horizon the spire of the Abbey Saint-Victor pierced the ridge of the hill with its slate obelisk, and the miller of the Capuay hillock was whistling as he watched the laborious wings of his mill turning. All this active, organized, tranquil life, recurring around him under a thousand forms, hurt him. He resumed his flight. He sped thus across the fields until evening. This flight from nature, life, himself, man, God, everything, lasted all day long. Sometimes he flung himself face downward on the earth and tore up the young blades of wheat with his nails. Sometimes he halted in the deserted street of a village, and his thoughts were so intolerable that he grasped his head in both hands and tried to tear it from his shoulders, in order to dash it upon the pavement. Towards the hour of sunset he examined himself again, and found himself nearly mad. The tempest which had raged within him ever since the instant when he had lost the hope and the will to save the gypsy, 
That tempest had not left in his conscience a single healthy idea, a single thought which maintained its upright position. His reason lay there almost entirely destroyed. There remained but two distinct images in his mind, La Esmeralda and the Gallows. All the rest was blank. Those two images united present to him a frightful group, and the more he concentrated what attention and thought was left to him, the more he beheld them grow, in accordance with a fantastic progression, the one in grace, in charm, in beauty, in light, the other in deformity and horror. So that at last La Esmeralda appeared to him like a star, the gibbet like an enormous, fleshless arm. One remarkable fact is that during the whole of this torture the idea of dying did not seriously occur to him. The wretch was made so. He clung to life. Perhaps he really saw hell beyond it. Meanwhile the day continued to decline. The living being which still existed in him reflected vaguely on retracing its steps. He believed himself to be far away from Paris. On taking his bearings he perceived that he had only circled the enclosure of the university. The spire of Saint-Sulpice and the three lofty needles of Saint-Germain-des-Prés rose above the horizon on his right. He turned his steps in that direction, when he heard the brisk challenge of the men-at-arms of the abbey around the crenellated, circumscribing wall of Saint-Germain, he turned aside, took a path which presented itself between the abbey and the Lazar house of the Bourg, and at the expiration of a few minutes found himself on the verge of the pre aux clairs This meadow was celebrated by reason of the brawls which went on there day and night. It was the hydra of the poor monks of Saint-Germain. Quod muaci sancti germani pretensis hydra fuit, clericis nova semper dissidorum capita suscitantibus. The archdeacon was afraid of meeting someone there. He feared every human countenance. He had just avoided the university and the Bourg Saint-Germain. He wished to re-enter the streets as late as possible. He skirted the pre aux clairs took the deserted path which separated it from the Dieu-Neuf, and at last reached the water's edge. There Dom Claude found a boatman, who, for a few farthings in Parisian coinage, rowed him up the Seine as far as the point of the city and landed him on that tongue of abandoned land where the reader has already beheld Gringoire dreaming, and which was prolonged beyond the king's gardens, parallel to the Ile du Passeur au Vacher. The monotonous rocking of the boat and the ripple of the water had in some sort quieted the unhappy Claude. When the boatman had taken his departure he remained standing stupidly on the strand staring straight before him and perceiving objects only through magnifying oscillations which rendered everything a sort of phantasmagoria to him. The fatigue of a great grief not infrequently produces this effect on the mind. The sun had set behind the lofty Tour de Nelle. It was the twilight hour. The sky was white, the water of the river was white. Between these two white expanses the left bank of the Seine, on which his eyes were fixed, projected its gloomy mass, and rendered, ever thinner and thinner by perspective, it plunged into the gloom of the horizon like a black spire. 
It was loaded with houses, of which only the obscure outline could be distinguished, sharply brought out in shadows against the light background of the sky and the water. Here and there windows began to gleam, like the holes in a brazier. That immense black obelisk thus isolated between the two white expanses of the sky and the river, which was very broad at this point, produced upon Dom Claude a singular effect, comparable to that which could be experienced by a man who, reclining on his back at the foot of the Tower of Strasbourg, should gaze at the enormous spire plunging into the shadows of the twilight above his head. Only in this case it was Claude who was erect, and the obelisk which was lying down. But as the river, reflecting the sky, prolonged the abyss below him, the immense promontory seemed to be as boldly launched into space as any cathedral spire, and the impression was the same. This impression had even one stronger and more profound point about it, that it was indeed the Tower of Strasbourg, but the Tower of Strasbourg two leagues in height, something unheard of, gigantic, immeasurable, an edifice such as no human eye has ever seen, a Tower of Babel. The chimneys of the houses, the battlements of the walls, the faceted gables of the roofs, the spire of the Augustines, the Tower of Nell, all these projections which broke the profile of the colossal obelisk added to the illusion by displaying in eccentric fashion to the eye the indentations of a luxuriant and fantastic sculpture. Claude, in the state of hallucination in which he found himself, believed that he saw, that he saw with his actual eyes, the bell-tower of hell. The thousand lights scattered over the whole height of the terrible tower seemed to him so many porches of the immense interior furnace. The voices and noises which escaped from it seemed so many shrieks, so many death-groans. Then he became alarmed. He put his hands on his ears that he might no longer hear turned his back that he might no longer see, and fled from the frightful vision with hasty strides. But the vision was in himself. When he re-entered the streets, the passers-by, elbowing each other by the light of the shop-fronts, produced upon him the effect of a constant going and coming of spectres about him. There were strange noises in his ears, extraordinary fancies disturbed his brain. He saw neither houses, nor pavements, nor chariots, nor men and women, but a chaos of indeterminate objects whose edges melted into each other. At the corner of the Rue de la Barillerie there was a grocer's shop whose porch was garnished all about, according to immemorial custom, with hoops of tin from which hung a circle of wooden candles, which came in contact with each other in the wind, and rattled like castanets. He thought he heard a cluster of skeletons at Montfaucon clashing together in the gloom. Oh, he muttered, the night breeze dashes them against each other and mingles the noise of their chains with the rattle of their bones. Perhaps she is there among them. In his state of frenzy, he knew not whither he was going. After a few strides, he found himself on the Pont Saint Michel. There was a light in the window of a ground-floor room. He approached. Through a cracked window he beheld a mean chamber which recalled some confused memory to his mind. In that room, badly lighted by a meagre lamp, 
there was a fresh, light-haired young man with a merry face, who amid loud bursts of laughter was embracing a very audaciously attired young girl, and near the lamp sat an old crone spinning and singing in a quavering voice. As the young man did not laugh constantly, fragments of the old woman's ditty reached the priest. It was something unintelligible, yet frightful. Greve bois, greve grouille, fear, fear, ma fear se à barreau, qui siffle dans le préau, greve bois, greve grouille. La belle corde de chambre, sous mes jusqu'à vendre, du chambre et non peste bleu. Le volume n'a pas volé, la belle cordée de chanvre. Grève grouille, grève bois, pour voir les filets de joie, prendrez au gibet chez eux, les fenêtres sont déos. Grève grouille, grève bois. Bark grev, grumble grev, spin, spin, my distaff spin, her rope for the hangman, who is whistling in the meadow. What a beautiful hempen rope! So, hemp, not wheat, from Isi to Vanvre. The thief hath not stolen the beautiful hempen rope. Grumble grev, bark grev, to see the dissolute wench hang on the blear-eyed gibbet, windows are eyes. Thereupon the young man laughed and caressed the wench. The crone was La Falordelle, the girl was a courtesan, the young man was his brother, Jehan. He continued to gaze. That spectacle was as good as any other. He saw Jehan go to a window at the end of the room, open it, cast a glance on the quay, where in the distance blazed a thousand lighted casements, and he heard him say as he closed the sash, "'Pon my soul! How dark it is! The people are lighting their candles, and the good God his stars!" Then Jehan came back to the hag, smashed a bottle standing on the table, exclaiming, "'Already empty! Go boof! And I have no more money! Isabeau, my dear, I shall not be satisfied with Jupiter until he has changed your two white nipples into two black bottles, where I may suck wine of bone day and night!' This fine pleasantry made the courtesan laugh, and Jehan left the room. Dom Claude had barely time to fling himself on the ground in order that he might not be met, stared in the face and recognized by his brother. Luckily, the street was dark and the scholar was tipsy. Nevertheless, he caught sight of the archdeacon prone upon the earth in the mud. "'Oh, oh!' said he. "'Here's a fellow who has been leading a jolly life to-day.' He stirred up Dom Claude with his foot, and the latter held his breath. "'Dead drunk,' resumed Jehan. "'Come, he's full. A regular leech detached from a hogshead. He's bald,' he added, bending down. "'Tis an old man. Fortunate Sinet!" Then Dom Claude heard him retreat, saying, "'Tis all the same. Reason is a fine thing, and my brother the archdeacon is very happy in that he is wise and has money." Then the archdeacon rose to his feet and ran without halting towards Notre Dame, whose enormous towers he beheld rising above the houses through the gloom. 
At the instant when he arrived, panting on the Place de Parvis, he shrank back and dared not raise his eyes to the fatal edifice. "'Oh,' he said in a low voice, "'is it really true that such a thing took place here today, this very morning?' Still he ventured to glance at the church. The front was somber. The sky behind was glittering with stars. The crescent of the moon, in her flight upward from the horizon, had paused at the moment on the summit of the right-hand tower, and seemed to have perched itself, like a luminous bird, on the edge of the balustrade cut out in black trefoils. The cloister door was shut, but the archdeacon always carried with him the key of the tower in which his laboratory was situated. He made use of it to enter the church. In the church he found the gloom and silence of a cavern. By the deep shadows which fell in broad sheets from all directions, he recognized the fact that the hangings of the ceremony of the morning had not yet been removed. The great silver cross shone from the depths of the gloom, powdered with some sparkling points, like the milky way of that sepulchral night. The long windows of the choir showed the upper extremities of their arches above the black draperies, and their painted panes, traversed by a ray of moonlight, had no longer any hues but the doubtful colours of night, a sort of violet, white and blue, whose tint is found only on the faces of the dead. The archdeacon, on perceiving these wan spots all around the choir, thought he beheld the mitres of damned bishops. He shut his eyes, and when he opened them again he thought they were a circle of pale visages gazing at him. He started to flee across the church. Then it seemed to him that the church also was shaking, moving, becoming endued with animation, that it was alive. That each of the great columns was turning into an enormous paw, which was beating the earth with its big stone spatula, and that the gigantic cathedral was no longer anything but a sort of prodigious elephant, which was breathing and marching with its pillars for feet, its two towers for trunks, and the immense black cloth for its housings. This fever, or madness, had reached such a degree of intensity that the external world was no longer anything more for the unhappy man than a sort of apocalypse, visible, palpable, terrible. For one moment he was relieved. As he plunged into the side aisles he perceived a reddish light behind a cluster of pillars. He ran towards it as to a star. It was the poor lamp which lighted the public breviary of Notre-Dame night and day, beneath its iron grating. He flung himself eagerly upon the holy book in the hope of finding some consolation, or some encouragement there. The book lay open at this passage of Job, over which his staring eye glanced. And a spirit passed before my face, and I heard a small voice, and the hair of my flesh stood up. On reading these gloomy words he felt that which a blind man feels when he feels himself pricked by the staff which he has picked up. His knees gave way beneath him, and he sank upon the pavement, thinking of her who had died that day. He felt so many monstrous vapours pass and discharge themselves in his brain that it seemed to him that his head had become one of the chimneys of hell. It would appear that he remained a long time in this attitude, no longer thinking, overwhelmed and passive beneath the hand of the demon. At length some strength returned to him. It occurred to him to take refuge in his tower beside his faithful Quasimodo. He rose, 
and as he was afraid, he took the lamp from the breviary to light his way. It was a sacrilege, but he had got beyond heeding such a trifle now. He slowly climbed the stairs of the towers, filled with a secret fright which must have been communicated to the rare passers-by in the Place du Parvis by the mysterious light of his lamp, mounting so late from loophole to loophole of the bell-tower. All at once he felt a freshness on his face, and found himself at the door of the highest gallery. The air was cold, the sky was filled with hurrying clouds, whose large white flakes drifted one upon another like the breaking up of river ice after the winter. The crescent of the moon, stranded in the midst of the clouds, seemed a celestial vessel caught in the ice-cakes of the air. He lowered his gaze, and contemplated for a moment, through the railing of slender columns which unites the two towers, far away, through a gauze of mists and smoke, the silent throng of the roofs of Paris, pointed, innumerable, crowded and small like the waves of a tranquil sea on a summer night. The moon cast a feeble ray, which imparted to earth and heaven an ashy hue. At that moment the clock raised its shrill, cracked voice. Midnight rang out. The priest thought of midday. Twelve o'clock had come back again. Oh, he said in a very low tone, she must be cold now. All at once a gust of wind extinguished his lamp, and almost at the same instant he beheld a shade, a whiteness, a form, a woman, appear from the opposite angle of the tower. He started. Beside this woman was a little goat, which mingled its bleat with the last bleat of the clock. He had strength enough to look. It was she. She was pale, she was gloomy. Her hair fell over her shoulders as in the morning but there was no longer a rope on her neck, her hands were no longer bound. She was free, she was dead. She was dressed in white and had a white veil on her head. She came towards him, slowly, with her gaze fixed on the sky. The supernatural goat followed her. He felt as though made of stone and too heavy to flee. At every step which she took in advance he took one backwards, and that was all. In this way he retreated once more beneath the gloomy arch of the stairway. He was chilled by the thought that she might enter there also. Had she done so, he would have died of terror. She did arrive, in fact, in front of the door to the stairway, and paused there for several minutes, stared intently into the darkness, but without appearing to see the priest, and passed on. She seemed taller to him than when she had been alive. He saw the moon through her white robe, he heard her breath. When she had passed on, he began to descend the staircase again, with the slowness which he had observed in the spectre, believing himself to be a spectre too, haggard, with hair on end, his extinguished lamp still in his hand. And as he descended the spiral steps, he distinctly heard in his ear a voice laughing and repeating, a spirit passed before my face, and I heard a small voice, and the hair of my flesh stood up. End of Book Nine, Chapter One Book Nine, Chapter Two of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.
Book Nine, Chapter Two Hunchbacked, One-Eyed, Lame Every city during the Middle Ages, and every city in France down to the time of Louis Twelfth, had its places of asylum. These sanctuaries, in the midst of the deluge of penal and barbarous jurisdictions which inundated the city, were a species of islands which rose above the level of human justice. Every criminal who landed there was safe. There were in every suburb almost as many places of asylum as gallows. It was the abuse of impunity by the side of the abuse of punishment, two bad things which strove to correct each other. The palaces of the king, the hotels of the princes, and especially churches, possessed the right of asylum. Sometimes a whole city which stood in need of being repeopled was temporarily created a place of refuge. Louis XI made all Paris a refuge in 1467. His foot once within the asylum, the criminal was sacred. But he must beware of leaving it. One step outside the sanctuary, and he fell back into the flood. The wheel, the gibbet, the strapado, kept good guard around the place of refuge, and lay in watch incessantly for their prey, like sharks around a vessel. Hence condemned men were to be seen whose hair had grown white in a cloister, on the steps of a palace, in the enclosure of an abbey, beneath the porch of a church. In this manner the asylum was a prison as much as any other. It sometimes happened that a solemn decree of Parliament violated the asylum and restored the condemned man to the executioner, but this was of rare occurrence. Parliaments were afraid of the bishops, and when there was friction between these two robes the gown had but a poor chance against the cassock. Sometimes, however, as in the affair of the assassins of Petit Jean, the headsman of Paris, and in that of Emery Rousseau, the murderer of Jean Valeray, justice overleaped the church and passed on to the execution of its sentences. But unless by virtue of a decree of Parliament, woe to him who violated a place of asylum with armed force. The reader knows the manner of death of Robert de Clermont, Marshal of France, and of Jean de Chalon, Marshal of Champagne. And yet the question was only of a certain Parin Marc, the clerk of a money-changer, a miserable assassin. But the two marshals had broken the doors of Sainte-Marie. Therein lay the enormity. Such respect was cherished for places of refuge that, according to tradition, animals even felt it at times. Emoi relates that a stag, being chased by Dagobert, having taken refuge near the tomb of Saint-Denis, the pack of hounds stopped short and barked. Churches generally had a small apartment prepared for the reception of supplicants. In 1407 Nicolas Flamel caused to be built on the vaults of Saint-Jacques de la Boucherie a chamber which cost him four livres, six sous, sixteen farthings parisis. At Notre-Dame it was a tiny cell, situated on the roof of the side aisle, beneath the flying buttresses, precisely at the spot where the wife of the present janitor of the towers has made for herself a garden, which is to the hanging gardens of Babylon what a lettuce is to a palm-tree, what a porter's wife is to a semiramis. It was here that Quasimodo had deposited La Esmeralda, after his wild and triumphant course. 
As long as that course lasted, the young girl had been unable to recover her senses, half unconscious, half awake, no longer feeling anything, except that she was mounting through the air, floating in it, flying in it, that something was raising her above the earth. From time to time she heard the loud laughter, the noisy voice of Quasimodo in her ear. She half opened her eyes, then below her she confusedly beheld Paris checkered with its thousand roofs of slate and tiles, like a red and blue mosaic, above her head the frightful and joyous face of Quasimodo. Then her eyelids drooped again. She thought that all was over, that they had executed her during her swoon, and that the misshapen spirit which had presided over her destiny had laid hold of her and was bearing her away. She dared not look at him, and she surrendered herself to her fate. But when the bell-ringer, disheveled and panting, had deposited her in the cell of refuge, when she felt his huge hands gently detaching the cord which bruised her arms, she felt that sort of shock which awakens with a start the passengers of a vessel which runs aground in the middle of a dark night. Her thoughts awoke also, and returned to her one by one. She saw that she was in Notre Dame. She remembered having been torn from the hands of the executioner. That Phoebus was alive. That Phoebus loved her no longer and as these two ideas, one of which shed so much bitterness over the other, presented themselves simultaneously to the poor condemned girl, she turned to Quasimodo, who was standing in front of her, and who terrified her. She said to him, "'Why have you saved me?' He gazed at her with anxiety, as though seeking to divine what she was saying to him. She repeated her question. Then he gave her a profoundly sorrowful glance and fled. She was astonished. A few moments later he returned, bearing a package which he cast at her feet. It was clothing which some charitable women had left on the threshold of the church for her. Then she dropped her eyes upon herself and saw that she was almost naked and blushed. Life had returned. Quasimodo appeared to experience something of this modesty. He covered his eyes with his large hand and retired once more, but slowly. She made haste to dress herself. The robe was a white one with a white veil, the garb of a novice of the Hôtel Dian. She had barely finished when she beheld Quasimodo returning. He carried a basket under one arm and a mattress under the other. In the basket there was a bottle, bread, and some provisions. He set the basket on the floor and said, Eat. He spread the mattress on the flagging, and said, Sleep! It was his own repast, it was his own bed, which the bell-ringer had gone in search of. The gypsy raised her eyes to thank him, but she could not articulate a word. She dropped her head with a quiver of terror. Then he said to her, I frighten you. I am very ugly, am I not? Do not look at me, only listen to me. During the day you will remain here. At night you can walk all over the church, but do not leave the church either by day or by night. You would be lost. They would kill you, and I should die." She was touched and raised her head to answer him. He had disappeared. She found herself alone once more, meditating upon the singular words of this almost monstrous being, and struck by the sound of his voice, which was so hoarse, yet so gentle. 
Then she examined her cell. It was a chamber about six feet square, with a small window and a door on the slightly sloping plane of the roof formed of flat stones. Many gutters with the figures of animals seemed to be bending down around her and stretching their necks in order to stare at her through the window. Over the edge of her roof she perceived the tops of thousands of chimneys which caused the smoke of all the fires in Paris to rise beneath her eyes. A sad sight for the poor gypsy, a foundling, condemned to death, an unhappy creature, without country, without family, without a hearthstone. At the moment when the thought of her isolation thus appeared to her more poignant than ever, she felt a bearded and hairy head glide between her hands, upon her knees. She started. Everything alarmed her now, and looked. It was the poor goat, the agile jolly, which had made its escape after her at the moment when Quasimodo had put to flight Charmeleau's brigade, and which had been lavishing caresses on her feet for nearly an hour past, without being able to win a glance. The gypsy covered him with kisses. "'Oh, jolly!' she said. "'How I have forgotten thee! And so thou still thinkest of me! Oh, thou art not an ingrate!' At the same time, as though an invisible hand had lifted the weight which had repressed her tears in her heart for so long, she began to weep, and in proportion, as her tears flowed, she felt all that was most acrid and bitter in her grief depart with them. Evening came. She thought the night so beautiful that she made the circuit of the elevated gallery which surrounds the church. It afforded her some relief. So calm did the earth appear when viewed from that height. End of Book Nine, Chapter Two. Book Nine, Chapter Three of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter Three. Death. On the following morning she perceived on awaking that she had been asleep. This singular thing astonished her. She had been so long unaccustomed to sleep. A joyous ray of the rising sun entered through her window and touched her face. At the same time, with the sun, she beheld at the window an object which frightened her, the unfortunate face of Quasimodo. She involuntarily closed her eyes again, but in vain. She fancied that she still saw through the rosy lids that gnome's mask, one-eyed and gap-toothed. Then, while she still kept her eyes closed, she heard a rough voice saying, very gently, "'Be not afraid. I am no friend. I came to watch you sleep. It does not hurt you if I come to see you sleep, does it? What difference does it make to you if I am here when your eyes are closed?' Now I am going. Stay, I have placed myself behind the wall. You can open your eyes again." There was something more plaintive than these words, and that was the accent in which they were uttered. The gypsy, much touched, opened her eyes. He was, in fact, no longer at the window. She approached the opening and beheld the poor hunchback crouching in an angle of the wall in a sad and resigned attitude. She made an effort to surmount the repugnance with which he inspired her. "'Come,' she said to him gently. 
From the movement of the gypsy's lips, Quasimodo thought that she was driving him away. Then he rose and retired limping, slowly, with drooping head, without even daring to raise to the young girl his gaze full of despair. "'Do come!' she cried, but he continued to retreat. Then she darted from her cell, ran to him, and grasped his arm. On feeling her touch him, Quasimodo trembled in every limb. He raised his suppliant eye, and seeing that she was leading him back to her quarters, his whole face beamed with joy and tenderness. She tried to make him enter the cell, but he persisted in remaining on the threshold. "'No, no,' said he, "'the owl enters not the nest of the lark.' Then she crouched down gracefully on her couch, with her goat asleep at her feet. Both remained motionless for several moments, considering in silence, she so much grace, he so much ugliness. Every moment she discovered some fresh deformity in Quasimodo. Her glance travelled from his knock knees to his humped back, from his humped back to his only eye. She could not comprehend the existence of a being so awkwardly fashioned. Yet there was so much sadness and so much gentleness spread over all this that she began to become reconciled to it. He was the first to break the silence. So you were telling me to return? She made an affirmative sign of the head and said, Yes. He understood the motion of the head. Alas! he said, as though hesitating whether to finish. "'I am, I am deaf!' "'Poor man!' exclaimed the Bohemian, with an expression of kindly pity. He began to smile sadly. "'You think that that was all that I lacked, do you not? Yes, I am deaf, that is the way I am made. Tis horrible, is it not? You are so beautiful!' There lay in the accents of the wretched man so profound a consciousness of his misery that she had not the strength to say a word. Besides, he would not have heard her. He went on. Never have I seen my ugliness as at the present moment. When I compare myself to you, I feel a very great pity for myself, poor unhappy monster that I am. Tell me. I must look to you like a beast. You are a ray of sunshine, a drop of dew, the song of a bird. I am something frightful, neither man nor animal. I know not what, harder, more trampled underfoot, more unshapely than a pebble-stone." Then he began to laugh, and that laugh was the most heart-breaking thing in the world. He continued. Yes, I am deaf, but you shall talk to me by gestures, by signs. I have a master who talks with me in that way. And then I shall very soon know your wish from the movement of your lips, from your look." "'Well,' she interposed with a smile, "'tell me why you saved me.' He watched her attentively while she was speaking. "'I understand,' he replied. You ask me why I saved you. You have forgotten a wretch who tried to abduct you one night, a wretch 
to whom you rendered succor on the following day, on their infamous pillory. A drop of water and a little pity, that is more than I can repay with my life. You have forgotten that wretch, but he remembers it." She listened to him with profound tenderness. A tear swam in the eye of the bell-ringer, but did not fall. He seemed to make it a sort of point of honour to retain it. "'Listen,' he resumed, when he was no longer afraid that the tear would escape. "'Our towers here are very high. A man who should fall from them would be dead before touching the pavement. When it shall please you to have me fall, you will not have to utter even a word. A glance will suffice." Then he rose. Unhappy as was the Bohemian, this eccentric being still aroused some compassion in her. She made him a sign to remain. "'No, no,' said he, "'I must not remain too long. I am not at my ease. It is out of pity that you do not turn away your eyes. I shall go to some place where I can see you without your seeing me. It will be better so." He drew from his pocket a little metal whistle. "'Here,' said he, "'when you have need of me, when you wish me to come, when you will not feel too ranch horror at the sight of me, use this whistle. I can hear it sound.' He laid the whistle on the floor and fled. End of Book Nine, Chapter Three Book Nine, Chapter Four of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter Four Earthenware and Crystal. Day followed day. Calm gradually returned to the soul of La Esmeralda. Excess of grief, like excess of joy, is a violent thing which lasts but a short time. The heart of man cannot remain long in one extremity. The gypsy had suffered so much that nothing was left her but astonishment. With security hope had returned to her. She was outside the pale of society, outside the pale of life but she had a vague feeling that it might not be impossible to return to it. She was like a dead person, who should hold in reserve the key to her tomb. She felt the terrible images which had so long persecuted her gradually departing. All the hideous phantoms, Pierrat Tortureau, Jacques Charmelou, were effaced from her mind, all, even the priest. And then Phoebus was alive. She was sure of it, she had seen him. To her the fact of Phoebus being alive was everything. After the series of fatal shocks which had overturned everything within her, she had found but one thing intact in her soul, one sentiment—her love for the captain. Love is like a tree. It sprouts forth of itself, sends its roots out deeply through our whole being and often continues to flourish greenly over a heart in ruins. And the inexplicable point about it is that the more blind is this passion, the more tenacious it is. It is never more solid than when it has no reason in it. La Esmeralda did not think of the captain without bitterness, no doubt. 
No doubt it was terrible that he also should have been deceived, that he should have believed that impossible thing, that he could have conceived of a stab dealt by her who would have given a thousand lives for him. But after all, she must not be too angry with him for it. Had she not confessed her crime? Had she not yielded, weak woman that she was, to torture? The fault was entirely hers. She should have allowed her fingernails to be torn out, rather than such a word to be wrenched from her. In short, if she could but see Phoebus once more, for a single minute, only one word would be required, one look, in order to undeceive him, to bring him back. She did not doubt it. She was astonished also at many singular things, at the accident of Phoebus's presence on the day of the penance, at the young girl with whom he had been. She was his sister, no doubt. An unreasonable explanation, but she contented herself with it, because she needed to believe that Phoebus still loved her, and loved her alone. Had he not sworn it to her? What more was needed, simple and credulous as she was? And then, in this matter, were not appearances much more against her than against him? Accordingly, she waited. She hoped. Let us add that the church, that vast church, which surrounded her on every side, which guarded her, which saved her, was itself a sovereign tranquilizer. The solemn lines of that architecture, the religious attitude of all the objects which surrounded the young girl, the serene and pious thoughts which emanated, so to speak, from all the pores of that stone, acted upon her without being aware of it. The edifice had also sounds fraught with such benediction and such majesty that they soothed this ailing soul. The monotonous chanting of the celebrants, the responses of the people to the priest, sometimes inarticulate, sometimes thunderous, the harmonious trembling of the painted windows, the organ bursting forth like a hundred trumpets, the three belfries humming like hives of huge bees, that whole orchestra on which bounded a gigantic scale, ascending, descending incessantly from the voice of a throng to that of one bell, dulled her memory, her imagination, her grief. The bells in particular lulled her. It was something like a powerful magnetism which those vast instruments shed over her in great waves. Thus every sunrise found her more calm, breathing better, less pale. In proportion as her inward wounds closed, her grace and beauty blossomed once more on her countenance, but more thoughtful, more reposeful. Her former character also returned to her, somewhat even of her gaiety, her pretty pout, her love for her goat, her love for singing, her modesty. She took care to dress herself in the morning, in the corner of her cell, for fear some inhabitants of the neighboring attics might see her through the window. When the thought of Phoebus left her time, the gypsy sometimes thought of Quasimodo. He was the sole bond, the sole connection, the sole communication which remained to her with men, with the living. Unfortunate girl, she was more outside the world than Quasimodo. She understood not in the least the strange friend whom chance had given her. She often reproached herself for not feeling a gratitude which should close her eyes, but decidedly she could not accustom herself to the poor bell-ringer, 
he was too ugly. She had left the whistle which he had given her lying on the ground. This did not prevent Quasimodo from making his appearance from time to time during the first few days. She did her best not to turn aside with too much repugnance when he came to bring her her basket of provisions or her jug of water, but he always perceived the slightest movement of this sort, and then he withdrew sadly. Once he came at the moment when she was caressing Jolly. He stood pensively for several minutes before this graceful group of the goat and the gypsy. At last he said, shaking his heavy and ill-formed head, "'My misfortune is that I still resemble a man too much. I should like to be wholly a beast like that goat.' She gazed at him in amazement. He replied to the glance, "'Oh, I well know why,' and he went away. On another occasion he presented himself at the door of the cell, which he never entered, at the moment when La Esmeralda was singing an old Spanish ballad, the words of which she did not understand, but which had lingered in her ear because the gypsy women had lulled her to sleep with it when she was a little child. At the sight of that villainous form which made its appearance so abruptly in the middle of her song, the young girl paused with an involuntary gesture of alarm. The unhappy bell-ringer fell upon his knees on the threshold, and clasped his large, misshapen hands with a suppliant air. "'Oh!' he said sorrowfully, "'continue, I implore you, and do not drive me away!' She did not wish to pain him, and resumed her lay, trembling all over. By degrees, however, her terror disappeared and she yielded herself wholly to the slow and melancholy air which she was singing. He remained on his knees, with hands clasped, as in prayer, attentive, hardly breathing, his gaze riveted upon the gypsy's brilliant eyes. On another occasion he came to her with an awkward and timid air. "'Listen,' he said, with an effort, "'I have something to say to you.' She made him a sign that she was listening. Then he began to sigh, half-opened his lips, appeared for a moment to be on the point of speaking. Then he looked at her again, shook his head, and withdrew slowly, with his brow in his hand, leaving the gypsy stupefied. Among the grotesque personages sculptured on the wall there was one to whom he was particularly attached, and with which he often seemed to exchange fraternal glances. Once the gypsy heard him saying to it, "'Oh, why am not I of stone like you?' At last, one morning, La Esmeralda had advanced to the edge of the roof, and was looking into the place over the pointed roof of Saint-Jean-Laurent. Quasimodo was standing behind her. He had placed himself in that position in order to spare the young girl, as far as possible, the displeasure of seeing him. All at once the gypsy started. A tear and a flash of joy gleamed simultaneously in her eyes. She knelt on the brink of the roof and extended her arms towards the place with anguish, exclaiming, "'Phoebus! Come! Come! A word! A single word in the name of heaven! Phoebus! Phoebus!' Her voice, her face, her gesture, her whole person, 
bore the heart-rending expression of a shipwrecked man who is making a signal of distress to the joyous vessel which is passing afar off in a ray of sunlight on the horizon. Quasimodo leaned over the place and saw that the object of this tender and agonizing prayer was a young man, a captain, a handsome cavalier, all glittering with arms and decorations, prancing across the end of the place and saluting with his plume a beautiful lady who was smiling at him from her balcony. However, the officer did not hear the unhappy girl calling him. He was too far away. But the poor deaf man heard. A profound sigh heaved his breast. He turned round. His heart was swollen with all the tears which he was swallowing. His convulsively clenched fists struck against his head, and when he withdrew them there was a bunch of red hair in each hand. The gypsy paid no heed to him. He said, in a low voice, as he gnashed his teeth, "'Damnation! That is what one should be like! Tis only necessary to be handsome on the outside!' Meanwhile she remained kneeling, and cried with extraordinary agitation, "'Oh, there he is, alighting from his horse! He is about to enter that house! Phoebus! He does not hear me! Phoebus!' How wicked that woman is to speak to him at the same time with me! Phoebus! Phoebus!" The deaf man gazed at her. He understood this pantomime. The poor bell-ringer's eye filled with tears, but he let none fall. All at once he pulled her gently by the border of her sleeve. She turned round. He had assumed a tranquil air. He said to her, would you like to have me bring him to you?" She uttered a cry of joy. "'Oh, go, hasten, run, quick! That captain, that captain, bring him to me! I will love you for it!' She clasped his knees. He could not refrain from shaking his head sadly. "'I will bring him to you,' he said in a weak voice. Then he turned his head and plunged down the staircase with great strides stifling with sobs. When he reached the place he no longer saw anything except the handsome horse hitched at the door of the gondolier house. The captain had just entered there. He raised his eyes to the roof of the church. La Esmeralda was there in the same spot, in the same attitude. He made her a sad sign with his head. Then he planted his back against one of the stone posts of the gondolier porch determined to wait until the captain should come forth. In the gondolier house it was one of those gala days which precede a wedding. Quasimodo beheld many people enter, but no one come out. He cast a glance towards the roof from time to time. The gypsy did not stir any more than himself. A groom came and unhitched the horse and led it to the stable of the house. The entire day passed thus, Quasimodo at his post, La Esmeralda on the roof, Phoebus, no doubt, at the feet of Fleur-de-Lis. At length night came, a moonless night, a dark night. Quasimodo fixed his gaze in vain upon La Esmeralda. Soon she was no more than a whiteness amid the twilight. Then nothing. All was effaced, all was black. Quasimodo beheld the front windows from top to bottom of the gondolier mansion illuminated. 
he saw the other casements in the place lighted one by one. He also saw them extinguished to the very last, for he remained the whole evening at his post. The officer did not come forth. When the last passers-by had returned home, when the windows of all the other houses were extinguished, Quasimodo was left entirely alone, entirely in the dark. There were at that time no lamps in the square before Notre-Dame. Meanwhile the windows of the Gondolarier mansion remained lighted, even after midnight. Quasimodo, motionless and attentive, beheld a throng of lively, dancing shadows pass athwart the many-colored painted panes. Had he not been deaf, he would have heard more and more distinctly, in proportion as the noise of sleeping Paris died away, a sound of feasting, laughter, and music in the Gondolarier mansion. Towards one o'clock in the morning the guests began to take their leave. Quasimodo, shrouded in darkness, watched them all pass out through the porch illuminated with torches. None of them was the captain. He was filled with sad thoughts. At times he looked upwards into the air, like a person who is weary of waiting. Great black clouds, heavy, torn, split, hung like crepe hammocks beneath the starry dome of night. One would have pronounced them spiders' webs of the vault of heaven. In one of these moments he suddenly beheld the long window on the balcony, whose stone balustrade projected above his head, open mysteriously. The frail glass door gave passage to two persons, and closed noiselessly behind them. It was a man and a woman. It was not without difficulty that Quasimodo succeeded in recognizing in the man the handsome captain, in the woman the young lady whom he had seen welcome the officer in the morning from that very balcony. The place was perfectly dark, and a double crimson curtain which had fallen across the door the very moment it closed again allowed no light to reach the balcony from the apartment. The young man and the young girl, so far as our deaf man could judge, without hearing a single one of their words, appeared to abandon themselves to a very tender tete-a-tete. The young girl seemed to have allowed the officer to make a girdle for her of his arm, and gently repulsed a kiss. Quasimodo looked on from below at this scene which was all the more pleasing to witness, because it was not meant to be seen. He contemplated with bitterness that beauty, that happiness. After all, nature was not dumb in the poor fellow, and his human sensibility, all maliciously contorted as it was, quivered no less than any other. He thought of the miserable portion which Providence had allotted to him. That woman and the pleasure of love would pass forever before his eyes, and that he should never do anything but behold the felicity of others. But that which rent his heart most in this sight, that which mingled indignation with his anger, was the thought of what the gypsy would suffer could she behold it. It is true that the night was very dark, that La Esmeralda, if she had remained at her post, and he had no doubt of this, was very far away, and that it was all that he himself could do to distinguish the lovers on the balcony. This consoled him. Meanwhile their conversation grew more and more animated. The young lady appeared to be entreating the officer to ask nothing more of her. Of all this Quasimodo could distinguish only the beautiful clasped hands, the smiles mingled with tears, 
the young girl's glances directed to the stars, the eyes of the captain lowered ardently upon her. Fortunately, for the young girl was beginning to resist but feebly, the door of the balcony suddenly opened once more and an old dame appeared. The beauty seemed confused, the officer assumed an air of displeasure, and all three withdrew. A moment later, a horse was champing his bit under the porch, and the brilliant officer, enveloped in his night-cloak, passed rapidly before Quasimodo. The bell-ringer allowed him to turn the corner of the street, then he ran after him with his ape-like agility, shouting, "'Hey there! Captain!' The captain halted. "'What wants this knave with me?' he said, catching sight through the gloom of that hip-shot form which ran limping after him. Meanwhile Quasimodo had caught up with him, and had boldly grasped his horse's bridle. "'Follow me, Captain. There is one here who desires to speak with you.' "'Corne meom,' grumbled Phoebus. "'Here's a villainous ruffled bird, which I fancy I have seen somewhere. Hola, master, will you let my horse's bridle alone?' "'Captain,' replied the deaf man, "'do not ask me who it is.' I tell you to release my horse," retorted Phoebus, impatiently. "'What means the knave by clinging to the bridle of my steed? Do you take my horse for a gallows?' Quasimodo, far from releasing the bridle, prepared to force him to retrace his steps. Unable to comprehend the captain's resistance, he hastened to say to him, "'Come, captain, tis a woman who is waiting for you,' he added with an effort. A woman who loves you." "'A rare rascal,' said the captain, "'who thinks me obliged to go to all the women who love me, or say they do. And what if, by chance, she should resemble you, you face of a screech-owl? Tell the woman who has sent you that I am about to marry, and that she may go to the devil!' "'Listen!' exclaimed Quasimodo, thinking to overcome his hesitation with a word. Come, Monsignor, tis the gypsy whom you know." This word did indeed produce a great effect on Phoebus, but not of the kind which the deaf man expected. It will be remembered that our gallant officer had retired with fleur-de-lis several moments before Quasimodo had rescued the condemned girl from the hands of Charmeleu. Afterwards, in all his visits to the Gondolarier mansion, he had taken care not to mention that woman the memory of whom was, after all, painful to him. And on her side, Fleur-de-Lis had not deemed it politic to tell him that the gypsy was alive. Hence Phoebus believed poor Similar to be dead, and that a month or two had elapsed since her death. Let us add that for the last few moments the captain had been reflecting on the profound darkness of the night, the supernatural ugliness, the sepulchral voice of the strange messenger that it was past midnight, that the street was deserted, as on the evening when the surly monk had accosted him, and that his horse snorted as it looked at Quasimodo. "'The gypsy!' he exclaimed, almost frightened. "'Look here! Do you come from the other world?' And he laid his hand on the hilt of his dagger. "'Quick! Quick!' said the deaf man, endeavouring to drag the horse along. "'This way!' Phoebus dealt him a vigorous kick in the breast. Quasimodo's eye flashed. 
he made a motion to fling himself on the captain. Then he drew himself up stiffly, and said, "'Oh, how happy you are to have someone who loves you!' He emphasized the words, someone, and loosing the horse's bridle, "'Begone!' Phoebus spurred on in all haste, swearing. Quasimodo watched him disappear in the shades of the street. "'Oh!' said the poor deaf man, in a very low voice, "'to refuse that!' He re-entered Notre-Dame, lighted his lamp, and climbed to the tower again. The gypsy was still in the same place as he had supposed. She flew to meet him, as far off as she could see him. "'Alone!' she cried, clasping her beautiful hands sorrowfully. "'I could not find him,' said Quasimodo coldly. "'You should have waited all night,' she said angrily. He saw her gesture of wrath, and understood the reproach. "'I will lie in wait for him better another time,' he said, dropping his head. "'Begone,' she said to him. He left her. She was displeased with him. He preferred to have her abuse him rather than to have afflicted her. He had kept all the pain to himself. From that day forth the gypsy no longer saw him. He ceased to come to her cell. At the most she occasionally caught a glimpse at the summit of the towers, of the bell-ringer's face turned sadly to her. But as soon as she perceived him he disappeared. We must admit that she was not much grieved by this voluntary absence on the part of the poor hunchback. At the bottom of her heart she was grateful to him for it. Moreover, Quasimodo did not deceive himself on this point. She no longer saw him but she felt the presence of a good genius about her. Her provisions were replenished by an invisible hand during her slumbers. One morning she found a cage of birds on her window. There was a piece of sculpture above her window which frightened her. She had shown this more than once in Quasimodo's presence. One morning, for all these things happened at night, she no longer saw it. It had been broken. The person who climbed up to that carving must have risked his life. Sometimes in the evening she heard a voice, concealed beneath the windscreen of the bell-tower, singing a sad, strange song as though to lull her to sleep. The lines were unrhymed, such as a deaf person can make. Ne regardez pas la figure, j'en fille regardez l'écure. Lecure d'un beau jaune, homme souvent déformé. Il est des cours au l'amour, ne se conservez pas. J'en filet, les sapins, n'est-ce pas beau, n'est-ce pas beau comme la poupée, mais il garde son feuillage levé. Et là, et quoi bon dire s'il est? Ce qui n'est pas beau à tort d'être. La beauté n'aime que la beauté. Avril tourne la dose à janvier. La beauté est parfait. La beauté pour tout. La beauté est la seule chose qui n'existe pas de mi. Le corbeau ne volé que le jour. Les hibots n'ont volé que la nuit, 
la signe volée la nuit et la jour. Look not at the face, young girl, look at the heart. The heart of a handsome young man is often deformed. There are hearts in which love does not keep. Young girl, the pine is not beautiful, it is not beautiful like the poplar, but it keeps its foliage in winter. Alas, what is the use of saying that? That which is not beautiful has no right to exist. Beauty loves only beauty. April turns her back on January. Beauty is perfect. Beauty can do all things. Beauty is the only thing which does not exist by halves. The raven flies only by day, the owl flies only by night, the swan flies by day and by night. One morning, on awaking, she saw on her window two vases filled with flowers. One was a very beautiful and very brilliant but cracked vase of glass. It had allowed the water with which it had been filled to escape, and the flowers which it contained were withered. The other was an earthenware pot, coarse and common, but which had preserved all its water, and its flowers remained fresh and crimson. I know not whether it was done intentionally, but La Esmeralda took the faded nosegay and wore it all day long upon her breast. That day she did not hear the voice singing in the tower. She troubled herself very little about it. She passed her days in caressing Jolly, in watching the door of the Grandelaurier house, in talking to herself about Phoebus, and in crumbling up her bread for the swallows. She had entirely ceased to see or hear Quasimodo. The poor bell-ringer seemed to have disappeared from the church. One night, nevertheless, when she was not asleep, but was thinking of her handsome captain, she heard something breathing near her cell. She rose in alarm, and saw by the light of the moon a shapeless mass lying across her door on the outside. It was Quasimodo, asleep there, upon the stones. End of Book Nine, Chapter Four Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.